Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you love juicy debates, well, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more to come. And also, down below in the description box, whether you are listening via YouTube or via Modern Day Debate on podcast, all of our guests are links linked, and we encourage you to check out our guest links as we really do appreciate them being with us. Thank you, James. All right, with that, uh, we're going to have the affirmative side in this case, the ones claiming it is prophecy, the Christian side, to go first. Uh, with that, uh, Jonathan Sheffield, I understand that you'll be going first. Uh, your, yeah. Your that, twin. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, we could just bring up my slides, and then uh, as soon as I start, sure if you can start the count. Sure thing. Uh, we'll bring up the slides, Jonathan, and uh, your 20 minutes begins at your first word. Profer is the first recorded critic of the book of Daniel. According to Jerome, Profer wrote his 12th book against the prophecy of Daniel, denying that it was composed by the person ascribed in its title. Instead, he asserted that it was penned by an unnamed individual living in Judea at the time of Antiochus. Profer went on to allege that Daniel did not foretell the future so much as he relayed the past. Finally, he asserted that whatever the author spoke of up until the time of Antiochus contained authentic history, whereas anything he may have conjectured beyond that point was false, as he would not have foreknown the future. By way of rejoinder, we can empirically test Profer's allegations by walking through the legal framework to identify and date textual artifacts from antiquity. Therefore, in building our case for the traditional 6th century BC dating of Daniel, let us factor in the following empirical observations. First, the process whereby a common text comes into being is the byproduct of a certain individual or group of individuals at a certain time in a certain place. Second, in the ancient world, the physical formation, distribution, and transmission of a common text resulted in lasting echoes of extrinsic evidence. Given the book of Daniel that is common among the Jews was not created ex nihilo, it would naturally leave behind archival fingerprints that we can examine. For in a similar manner, we come to knowledge of another textual work of antiquity of the same period, the production of the Homeric text under the Archon of Athens Pisistratus, elicited subsequent reports by Diognetius Strax, Cicero, and others of the text formation and distribution throughout Athenian society, thus enabling us to trace the publication back to its 6th century BC origin. This showcases how even at this early point in history, material traces of such endeavors were meticulously recorded. As to the ascertainment of authorship for a common text, the great Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, demonstrates the procedural precedent employed among the ancients. He states, how do we know the authorship of the works of Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Varro, and other similar writers? How is the authorship ascertained in each case except by the author having brought his work into public notice as much as possible during his own lifetime. 
And where is evidence for the fact to be found, but in the information possessed by some at the time, and then transmitted by them through successive generations, even to distant times. If we apply Augustine's historically relevant criterion to the book of Daniel, we will see that the self-same investigative principles will provide the threads of evidence pointing us back to Daniel as the rightful author. Applying the first element to our investigation, we ask, is there evidence of an esteemed figure named Daniel by the sixth century BC that is consistent with the figure mentioned in the book of Daniel? Yes, a person of interest has been identified. Ezekiel, a contemporary of the period situated in Babylon, refers to a person known as Daniel on three separate occasions, along with two known prophets in the Jewish canon. Now, the works of Josephus are of great importance for the ensuing part of our investigation, because he wrote about two precise areas from which we seek information, the Jewish histories and its canon. Towards the conclusion of the Antiquities, Josephus asserts that in writing this work, he performed a great feat that no one, whether they be Jew or Gentile, could emulate of issuing so accurate a treatise for the Greek world. First, it is crucial to be mindful of the fact that when Josephus was about to write the history of the Jews, he was not only obliged to look for information dealing with the events of his own native country, but also have regard to such sources as had the general affairs of the Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, Syrian, and Roman empires for their object. Josephus impressed upon his readers that the antiquities were written for a Greek and Roman audience, which subjects his reports to criticism among the ruling class. As Dr. Carrier has stated, the masses were often gullible, yet educated elites reading books like Josephus typically were not. Second, Josephus prided himself on the accuracy of his histographia, boldly claiming that the Greeks and Romans would not find a more accurate account of the Jewish histories than in his works. Josephus reminded his readers that his recounting of the Jewish war had received the approval of Titus and Vespasian, and that he regularly conferred with Julius Archelaus, Herod, and Agrippa II, all men who had borne testimony that Josephus had demonstrated the strictest regard for the truth. In the modern day, even Dr. Richard Carrier recognizes that a lot of Josephus's history checks out, and it has cooperation and reliable sourcing. He also notes that Josephus names and describes the merits of numerous sources for his histories and mentions some of the reliable written sources that he used, such as Nicholas of Damascus, a reputable court historian and friend of Herod the Great. In book one against Apian, Josephus provides historically significant testimony certifying that the Jewish canon was closed by 424 BC. He numbers the book of Daniel among its contents emphasizing the prophets recorded the events in their own period, not after. Furthermore, Josephus confirms that authoritative writings cease since the reign of Arcaxerxes, and how firmly the Jewish nation has given credit to its canon is evident by its actions. For during the passage of so many ages, no one has been so bold as to add or take anything away from it. If the Jews were so inclined to add a work to their canon, after the time of Arcaxerxes, it would have been strange to publish a seemingly insignificant account of an interpreter of dreams. Instead, any addition would have certainly involved the history of the Maccabees, portraying their epic struggle against the Secludians that marked one of the most important military campaigns since the time of David. 
Despite the importance of the event, which is still commemorated during Hanukkah, this was never added to the Jewish canon, whereas it was included in the Septuagint, demonstrating evidence of the unchanging legitimacy of the Jewish canon. Moreover, Josephus surveyed the publication since the time of Axiaxerxes, but reported those writings were unworthy of equal credit with the earlier records, because there's not been an exact succession of the prophets since that time. A report corroborated by Jerome from the Jews during his translation of the Hebrew canon into Latin. Therefore, any new works from that period would have been precluded. Additionally, Orthodox Jews would have considered it blasphemy to alter their canon after the reign of Arceus by virtue of their superstition. They believed the Holy Spirit was withdrawn after the last prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, a belief witnessed throughout rabbinic literature inside and outside the Talmud, demonstrating widespread belief, not private opinion. Evidence of exceptional consequence is also found in Josephus' Antiquities, which detail the public presentation of Daniel in 332 to the Macedonian king Alexander. The meaning is corroborated on a vast number of fronts in the Jewish scroll of fasting, Babylonian Talmud, pseudo-calentheses, and the writings of Origen and Eusebius. Not only does Josephus' report fits the historical conditions of the period, but it also presents the simplest explanation as to why Alexander did not take Jerusalem. Just as Josephus' report of Cyrus's reading of Isaiah explains why the Jews were spared and allowed to rebuild their temple and city walls. For the record, Arian confirms that the area known as Syrian Palestine, that is Israel, had accepted Alexander's control. And elsewhere, Alexander speaking before his men at Opus enumerated Palestine among the areas that he secured tribute from. Evidence a deal had been reached with the Jews. Further evidence of this kind is found in Josephus' citation of Hectephius of Adepta, a contemporary of Alexander and Ptolemy, who attests the Jews went as auxiliaries along with King Alexander, another element cited in Josephus' record. Josephus report that Alexander made haste to go up to Jerusalem from Gaza as previously promised due to the Jews' refusal to send auxiliaries and supplies for his siege of Tyre, is consistent with the Roman historian's Rufus's record that Alexander at Gaza went out to those cities which had refused to submit to him. While Egypt presented Alexander with numerous splendors like the national treasuries and the title of Pharaoh, what could the Jews, allies of the Persians, based in the strategic military high ground, give the king after denying his request to spare its capital? The answer is clear. Josephus affirms the book of Daniel was shown to him where Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, and Alexander believed he was that person. Alexander would not have believed, would not have offended a god who he had felt predicted his victories. Arian and Plutarch attest that Alexander believed he was of divine origin, and his men even criticized him for adopting foreign gods. With that, I cede my time over to Dr. Boyce. And I'll start whenever he pulls up my slides as well, Samuel. Yeah, we'll pause the clock until that happens. 
All right. All right. So I'm going to pick up where Jonathan left off and look at the era of the time where some have alleged the book of Daniel would have been written in the middle parts of the second century. So let's take a look at the witnesses of that time. Would they have ever seen something like this take place? Let's consider first Maccabees at the beginning of this. Note what it says in chapter two. And there's this long section from verse 51 to 60, and I condensed it for time. He says, call to remembrance what acts of our fathers did in their time or literally in their days. He goes through this long list. He mentions Abraham and David all the way down to Elijah or Elias for being zealous and fervent for the law. He was taken up in heaven. And then he mentions four important figures, Ananias, Azariah, and Mishael, which is their Hebrew names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was their names given to them once they came to Babylon by believing we're saved out of the flame, going to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel, for his innocency, was delivered from the mouth of lions, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So here's something that we need to understand about the Maccabees, which is around that time of the second century, they saw these four men as fathers who acted in this manner in their days, not not as companions or contemporaries of their time in the Maccabean period, but rather these men existed at a specific period of time and they did these heroic acts and they were seen equal to that of Elijah and David and Abraham. They were held in such high regard. Another section to consider in 1 Maccabees was this time in chapter 9 when they're dealing with the great tribulation that was hitting them. They're fighting through this in the middle of war. It says, this great tribulation in Israel, like of which has not been since the time of the prophets, ceased to appear from among them. And this goes back to what Jonathan was saying in his presentation. The overall belief throughout was that the prophets had ceased. At that very point, it was at an end. And later in 1 Maccabees chapter 14, and the Jews and their priests had consented that he, and this is Simon Maccabeus, should be their prince and high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet. Once more, again, in the first Maccabees, they're not considering new revelation to be coming. They're not considering new prophecy to be coming. And so they would have seen anybody raising themselves up to be a prophet or to write on behalf of God or to be a part of a canonical collection they would have rejected that in their day. And we have to understand the Maccabee family was that of the priesthood. These are the high priest times. And so they raised up Simon, one of the sons, to be not only the prince, but the high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet, which they believe was the one that would come promised by Malachi. And so they did not believe a prophet had arisen. And if there was going to be any transmission of a text, they would have been knowing uh, they would have been in the know, and they would have been a part of actually collecting that, which we'll see in a minute. Another one that needs to be considered is the Talmud, for example. The Talmud in two different sections, you have in the Yama 1.9, it says, Abba said, the refers of Bath Kol, as we have taught in the following Baratha. With the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the prophetic spirit was withdrawn from Israel. So here's the people of the time, the Jewish understanding of their heritage, writing commentary of what took place. And they recognized the spirit of prophecy was taken from Israel. And it ended at the time of the writings of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, which was in the return from exile. And then they said later, also in the Bavra Batra in 15. And thus, the book of Daniel 
which was in exile. So here's something you need to recognize that Daniel was not just a historical figure to them. He was writing a book which was in exile. And thus the scroll of Esther and the 12, which prophecies were minor, that would be the minor prophets, did not write it together, but rather, catch the phrase, each wrote their own books. So he's not only alleging here in the Talmud that Daniel wrote a book, but that he wrote his own book, that he was the author of that writing, and that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi came and saw that the Holy Spirit was withdrawing, that they were the last prophets. So they have just a wealth of information here from Jewish heritage belief systems spread out. You have Josephus, you have the Talmud, you have the Maccabeans recognizing the spirit of prophecy was gone. Later after this time period, not far after in the book of 2nd Baruch 85, you see this attested to as well. Further, know that our fathers in former times and former generations had helpers, righteous prophets of the Kadesh men. But now the righteous have been assembled and the prophets are sleeping. They recognize the prophets are no longer around. They are dead. They did not involve themselves in new works on behalf of the Holy Spirit. They believed in that closing of the canon. Also consider 2 Maccabees. I think this is important to understanding how in, in, in this time frame a book would have been recognized, canonized, or placed within a collection that they would have approved of either by commentary or canon. This family was duplicating what was done in the time of the exile and their return of the days of Nehemiah. Consider chapter two, verse 13. And these same things were set down in the memoirs and commentaries of Nehemiah and how he made a library and gathered together out of the countries, the books, both the prophets, which they have already categorically placed Daniel and David and the epistles of the Kings concerning the holy gifts. And in like manner, Judas, this is Judas Maccabeus, also gathered together all such things. So you have Judas Maccabeus, who is a part of this priestly line in the middle of war. What would take place is there would be a collection of the books. They would take these books in any commentaries. Lineages were very important when you read Ezra chapter two, when you're Nehemiah chapter seven. When you're looking at the books that they go into in the Old Testament in times of war or conflict, they're collecting their data from their canon and what they call scripture and prophets, any kind of lineages they can trace their bloodlines to, any commentaries of what took place of historicity, they collect them and put them together. And that's what they're saying Nehemiah did in the return of exile. And in like manner in times of war during the Maccabean times, they too with Judas Maccabeus gathered all of these same books, all such things, the prophets, David, the epistles of the kings, and they collected anything they had so that they would not be lost because wartime usually produces destruction, burnings, and you lose what's happening. So if there were to be a book written in the middle of the second century, the Maccabean family would have been fully aware of it. And if they had alleged themselves to be a writer under the description of Daniel, they would have had to approve such a work into this collection of library where they were preserving in the time of war that which was spoken of in the prophets and David and the epistles of the kings, the Torah, and all that they learned from their history and lineages. This would have been overly alarming to them because they would have seen it as an imposter. They would have called it out. The Jews nor the church have had any issue in history at calling out forgeries, recognizing mistakes, recognizing perversions, 
And so we see that here. Also consider once more Josephus, as we've already heard. So it was said the temple was made desolate by Antiochus and continued for three years. And in this desolation came to pass according to the prophecy of Daniel, which was given 408 years before, for he declared that some of the Macedonians would dissolve that worship for some time. And this is in the antiquities of the Jews. So Josephus recognized Daniel was a prophet. He had predicted these things 408 years before. He had already recognized the closing of the canon. That closing of the canon is consistent with the Talmud. It is consistent with 1 Maccabees. It's consistent with how canonization would have been recognized. It's consistent in 2 Maccabees looking at Judas Maccabeus and how he would have built this library like unto Nehemiah. He would have only allowed that which was accepted as prophecy, which they have already as a family established, ended at the time of Malachi ended at the time of Zechariah and Haggai. One last thing to consider in closing, two manuscripts in the Qumran family known recently to the name of Midrash of Eschatology. This is an interesting collection of those at Qumran in the 50 to 80 BC era, in that time, 30-year frame perhaps. They're looking for signs of the Messiah. They go through Deuteronomy 18. They look at 2 Samuel 7, the Psalms of what they say about the Messiah, Hosea's prophecies. And oddly enough, they mention also the book of Daniel in light of the resurrection. Up to this point, the prophecies have been received unto 11 chapters compiled within the fragments of Qumran. The 12th chapter is missing in the Qumran fragments, but not in the commentary section like this. In fact, you see a commentary of Daniel chapter 12 in relation to the coming Messiah and the resurrection. So they obviously had chapter 12. It was not some Greek tradition that brought in the mythology of resurrection. Rather, they were doing commentary of what was already existed. It ought to be noted that the phrasing in one of these fragments is this. It is written in the book of Daniel the prophet. What, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What should we consider around the time of 50 to 80 B.C.? Those at Qumran and their scribes were not penning a new work or transmitting the current modern work. Rather, they were right. They were considering the book of Daniel a written text and that he was a prophet. This was not a contemporary work they were recognizing. They were continuing this transmission and giving it commentary equal to Deuteronomy 18's prophecy of Messiah, 2 Samuel 7, Psalms and Hosea and other works like Isaiah. They were considering Daniel's work equal to its validation of prophecy of Messiah's coming. And we find that in this little bit of fragment we have left of the commentary of the Midrash of eschatology. And time. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Stephen Boyce and Jonathan Sheffield. You guys ate into the additional one minute. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, thank you very much for your opening statements. We go over to the, uh, the ATS side, Dr. Josh Bowen and uh, Jim Majors. You would have uh, 20 minutes as well uh, in your opening statement. I'll give you a little bit of time in the transition between the first and second speaker. Uh, and like, like they did, you would have an additional one minute if you do cross time. So uh, your time, your 20, your 20 minutes starts at your first word. All right, well, I will start and get my stuff out of the way because Jim is the real expert here. Um, Please. So. <laughs> The dating of the book of Daniel is one of the battleground topics for many Christians and apologists. The book purports to be written by Daniel in the 6th century BCE and predicts events from the following centuries. 
The consensus of biblical scholars today, however, is that the book was not composed in the 6th century, but was compiled in a much later date, in the 2nd century BCE. Here, I will focus on three points that strongly suggest a late date of writing, vague and sometimes inaccurate early historical events, specific and accurate later events, and the final kingdom as presented in the book, Greece. The overall argument that I will make is as follows. Descriptions of earlier events tend to be more vague and to contain historical inaccuracies. Conversely, the later events are described in much greater detail and accuracy. This fits well with the second century composition of the book. Finally, the visions of chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 through 12 vary in specificity, but all describe the final earthly kingdom as Greece, stated specifically in two of the visions. If the kingdom of Greece is the final kingdom to exist before the coming kingdom of God, this strongly indicates that the visions were not predicting some time in the distant future, but rather that the end would come in the 2nd century BCE. This accords well with the 2nd century writing. Let's begin by briefly covering some of the early historical problems with the book. For most of the following issues, apologists have argued with, for possible solutions, however unlikely they may be. Often, however, we are simply left with, well, isn't it possible that? First, Daniel reports a siege of Jerusalem in Jehoiakim's third year, which would be 606 or 605, an event for which we have no evidence, which we would expect to see in the Babylonian Chronicle. Second, scholars agree that the madness of Nebuchadnezzar is the result of attributing a tradition about Nabonidus, the crazy king who spent 10 years away from Babylonia, to Nebuchadnezzar. This is supported by the text from Qumran, the prayer of Nabonidus, which parallels the story about Nebuchadnezzar. Third, the figure of Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, presents numerous problems. For example, he was not Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he was not in command when Babylonia fell to Cyrus. Finally, I will mention Darius the Mede, a ruler for which we have no historical evidence. Not only is there no evidence, but we actually know who was ruling at the time when Darius was said to have been in power. In short, from the, from the period in which Daniel was purported to have lived, he got many of the historical details wrong. However, in Daniel 11, we see that details from the later period, the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE, were far more specific and accurate. Following a description of Alexander the Great and the Diadochoi, we see in verses 5 through 8, The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will rise and take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. The events described here are those concerning Ptolemy I and Seleucus I. The latter joined the former as a general to fight off Antigonus. However, after Antigonus died in 301, Seleucus uh, I became more powerful than Ptolemy I. 
Uh, about 50 years later, Ptolemy II attempted to reconcile with the Seleucids by marrying off Berenice to Antiochus II. However, this ultimately backfired, and Berenice, her son, her Egyptian servants, and her father all died. Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, attacked Antiochus II and carried off plunder. There was then two years without conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. From these verses alone, you can see that the events describing the second and third and second centuries, just before the book is agreed to have been compiled, are far more detailed and accurate. Finally, the earthly kingdom described in chapters 7, 8, and 10 to 12 is Greece. The text anticipates that during the time of the Greek Empire, under a ruler that will bring about desolations, removal of the daily sacrifice, and utter turmoil to the people, the end would come, ushering in the reign of God's heavenly kingdom. This, of course, fits perfectly with not only a second century composition of Daniel, but with the overall purpose of the book. As an apocalyptic text, its goal is to explain the evil in the world and to encourage the faithful to remain so for just a little while longer, as deliverance was just around the corner. In conclusion, I would like to illustrate what I consider to be a fundamental problem in the debate on the dating of Daniel, beginning with a conclusion. In the publication of his dissertation, Stephen Anderson, not that Stephen Anderson, writes, quote, Most importantly, Daniel was a prophet who wrote infallibly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whereas extra-biblical sources for the life of Cyrus are ordinary human writings. Since God was speaking through Daniel as he wrote, the book of Daniel is not to be viewed as an account of uncertain trustworthiness, whose veracity is to be judged by other data, but rather must be the standard by which all other accounts are measured, end quote. Concerning this type of fundamentalist approach, which is often mirrored in many aspects in Christian apologetics, Lester Graeber writes, quote, Fundamentalism has already determined its conclusions. It is not seeking because it already knows the answer. If it has good evidence on its side which supports the Bible, it uses it. If it has little data, it twists and interprets what it has to support the Bible. If it has no evidence, it hypothesizes that such will eventually be found. And of course, no amount of contrary evidence is sufficient. Fundamentalism can never conclude that the Bible is wrong. With that, I turn it over to Jim. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Josh. Awesome. Uh, thanks for breaking that ice. Uh, so as Dr. Josh said, when it comes to the highly contested origins of the book of Daniel, there are two major views. You have the traditionalist view or the conservative view and the critical scholar view or the liberal view. The traditionalist view regarding the dating of Daniel is the same as that which the book seems to claim, that it is a 6th century BCE text written by an exiled Jewish official in Babylon who uh, is predicting events that are not fulfilled until the 2nd century BCE and later. Uh, the critical scholar's view, nearly unanimously held by scholars who study the book of Daniel, widely view the book of Daniel as a redacted compilation of a collection of early court tales from the late Persian and early Hellenistic period. Uh, this would be chapters one through six in the book of Daniel that you know today, and later editions of visions that, are, uh, that were written in the second century BCE, uh, which you would know as chapters seven through 12, the second half. Most critical scholars see the book of Daniel as a text that came about to encourage Jews under Antiochian persecution uh, during the second century 
BCE uh, to help them uh, and encourage them to continue being faithful to their God and to obey their uh, their traditional rules and uphold their traditional values, despite the pressure to assimilate to a more Hellenized form of Judaism. Uh, this period of Hellenization uh, in the in the region began with the conquest of uh, Alexander the Great in the fourth century BCE, and uh, the Hellenization spread until uh, much past the, the second century BCE, but second century BCE, you could say that uh, uh, Hellenization was uh, at its height uh, in the history of Judaism. Uh, many traditionalists, mainly Christian apologists, often accuse critical scholars of taking a naturalistic approach to their dating methods and claiming supernatural occurrences such as divinely delivered prophecy uh, to be impossible. And if you've heard that, then hear this. Critical scholars are allowed to believe in the supernatural. This may seem like a shocker, but while many scholars don't believe the supernatural uh, exists, many do. However, critical scholars in the field, uh, fields such as history and archaeology, uh, whether a believer or not, use methodology that relies on an unbiased view of culture and religion and makes no assumption as to the validity of supernatural elements of their subjects of study. Uh, so many critical scholars are simply believers who have set aside their theological presuppositions and approach the text like they would any other. If critical scholars, uh, even believers, were to take Daniel to be completely true at face value, then they'd have to accept as truth the writings of every other alleged prophet, seer, and oracle, regardless of the faith. And as you can imagine, this could lead to more than a few difficulties. When critical scholars analyze the book of Daniel from an unbiased perspective, including many of those who hold a personal belief in divine prophecy, they do not see a sixth century text that's accurately predicting the next 2,500 plus years. They see a second century redaction of second, third, fourth, and fifth century BCE texts that poorly predicts the next few years. This is a position that is reached by first examining the, histor the, uh, uh, the historical, then the theological, and then the literary nature of the book of Daniel. In other words, it is a conclusion that is come to by examining the evidence, and it's not a, an assumption made before doing so. Uh, one such person that does this is the late Robert Henry Pfeiffer, a Protestant Bible scholar and a seriologist who taught at Harvard University from 1922 after serving as a Methodist minister from 1916 to 1919. And in his uh, introduction to the Old Testament, uh, one of the, the greatest commentaries of the early 20th century, uh, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, he writes, quote, historical research can deal only with authenticated facts, which are within the sphere of natural possibilities and must refrain from, from vouching for the truth of supernatural events, end quote. When critical scholars analyze the book of Daniel, uh, they think to themselves, if this text was authored in the sixth century BCE, we would expect that the historical content of the text would support that claim. Uh, you would expect that a uh, a an author, the author, if the author of Daniel was writing during the Babylonian exile or shortly thereafter, that he would be aware of cultural and political happenings in the area. But that's not at all the case. Uh, traditionalists claim that the Book of Daniel was written by a Jew who personally witnessed and experienced the fall of Jerusalem, life under Neo-Babylonian rule, and the fall of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But as Dr. Joshua has already pointed out, it's clear that the author doesn't know who the king of Jerusalem was when it fell, Jehoiachin, not Jehoiakim, who the king of Babylon was when Babylon fell, 
Nabonidus, not Belshazzar, who the kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus are. Daniel doesn't seem to know of, of Amel Marduk, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Nereglissar, uh, Labashi Marduk. Uh, and he doesn't seem to know when Jerusalem fell. It was uh, in 598 BCE, not 606 or 605. Uh, and he doesn't seem to know when Babylon fell uh, because he doesn't even know who Babylon fell to, the, the event that would be closest to the time of the alleged authorship in the 6th century. So if the traditionalist view is correct, then these are all events and people that the author of Daniel would know. Yet we see the author constantly and consistently making mistakes when talking about his own life in exile. He can't tell you common facts about the 6th century world that he lives in, but some people believe that he can predict the future. It, when it comes to, to prophecy, prophecy is not just a prediction of, of history. It, it, is, it is not ex eventu. Uh, prophecy is, it, it, it had a, a, a present meaning for those people in the context that it's presented in, for the, for the audience that it is delivered to. Uh, not to, to somebody thousands of years later. Prophecy's main component is its predictive power. Uh, Daniel is supposed to be a prophecy of Jesus coming back thousands of years later, according to most Christians. But for some reason, the author of Daniel isn't aware of any kingdom after Greece. Doesn't make sense. Um, we do not have any evidence outside of the Bible of a deportation which took place during the third year of Jehoiakim, which was in 607, 606. Uh, the first capture of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar II was in 598 or 597, and like I said, it was during the reign of the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. Uh, so this is something that Daniel would have been present for. You know, whenever Jerusalem was taken over, this would be a, a huge memory as a, a young man, as a, as a teenager, you know, the city being invaded. It's highly unlikely that he would forget who the king was. Many cuneiform documents have been found in catalog that are dated to the beginning of the Babylonian exile and, and beyond, and I'm sorry, and later than that. And there's even one mentioning the name of Jehoiachin that's in, internally dated to 592 BCE. Uh, all these tablets, over 100, show Jehoiachin continued to be regarded as the legitimate king of Judah. He was given special treatment reflecting uh, his position while he was in captivity, um, such as like eating with the king. Uh, or eating the king's food, not only by Nebuchadnezzar, but by his uh, uh, successors as well. And you can also see that in 2 Kings 25, uh, verse 27 through 30, and in Jeremiah 52, verses 31 through 34. Um, and it's clear that Daniel is talking about Antiochus. It's what everything is boiling down to. All these historical points end at Antiochus, such as the, the little horn in Daniel 8 9. Uh, it says um, that, that talks about the the host being given over and together with the regular burnt offering and that there, the the regular burnt offering that, that there would be a transgression that would, would make it desolate um, that would be uh, uh, that would force the sanctuary to be given over and the host to be trampled. And it says for two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Well, first Maccabees, second Maccabees, I mean, we, there are so many texts that talk about Antiochus doing this. Josephus even, Josephus uh, says Antiochus IV built an, alt, an idol altar on God's altar and slew swine on it, that he sacrificed pigs on it, which would most certainly make a Jewish uh, altar desolate. 
and the erection of the idol altar. Whenever you see references to abominations in the Old Testament, they can uh, nearly always be understood as heathen gods, idols depicting heathen gods, offerings to heathen gods, or, or anything associated with uh, the worship of foreign gods was called an abomination. Um, Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, which is the prophecy that I think we're going to end up, uh, that, uh, that, that I thought was going to be on everybody's mind um, coming into this. Uh, to quote George Peters, a, a Lutheran minister, he said, it has been well observed by various writers that if the 70 weeks are to end with the death of Christ and the incoming destruction of Jerusalem, it is simply impossible with all ingenuity expended in this direction by eminent men to make out an accurate fulfillment of prophecy from the dates given for the time usually adduced being either too long to fit with the crucifixion of Christ or too short to extend to the destruction of Jerusalem. In Jewish eschatology, the end days had certain events that were to, trans to, uh, to transpire. God was to redeem the Jewish people from their captivity, uh, a second exodus, if you will. God was to return them back to their homeland of Israel. He was to restore the house of David and rebuild the temple. He was to create a, a, a ruler on earth, a, a regent, a, uh, a, uh, of, of a, a, a co-regent of God, if you will, from the house of David that uh, was understood as a Messiah, uh, to, lead these, the, to lead the Jews into a new age, into a messianic age, an, an age of peace. Two minutes. Okay, thank you. Uh, that all nations would recognize that the God of Israel is the only God and come to worship it. And, and that God would resurrect the dead and then he would create this new heaven and a new earth. Uh, or so if, if there was any, any variation in any of those, you know, amongst the Jewish, the Jewish sects, it was, it was very few, but most this is, this is how the, what the standard Jewish eschatology looked like as far as the end of days. In Daniel 9, you have a prophecy that is broken down that says, uh, going forth the word to, uh, to restore and build, and then seven weeks. Uh, so you have one period of seven weeks. You have a period of 62 weeks, a uh, time of trouble when the city is supposed to be rebuilt. And one minute there's supposed to be a coming of an anointed ruler. And finally, in the third, you have a cutting off of an anointed one. And the, uh, this, this ruler, um, his forces uh, desolating the city and this ruler making a pact with the many. And then you have a, another half a week. And then you have a, uh, a, a stop that has come to the offering because of an abomination of desolation that is installed in the sanctuary. Then another half week, and then a decree to the coming ruler uh, and an end to sin and uh, Jerusalem's desolations and the uh, eternal righteousness. Yay, 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 blah, blah, blah. Uh, so there's clearly two different anointed ones here, and they're 62 uh, weeks or 434 years apart. Uh, Daniel's interest in this prophecy is clearly focused on this last division, uh, specifically this last half of this, the, 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 the 70 weeks of years. And like Dr. Josh said, the message essentially is that the end of their suffering is near, that the time that's left is nothing compared to the time that's already passed. So the decree is coming soon. They'll be all right. In Daniel 9.25, it speaks of a, a decree being issued. Uh, and 
that's it's clearly the uh, the the edict of Cyrus, which allowed the temple to be uh, to be rebuilt. Thirty seconds. Uh, how, how many? Uh, Thirty seconds left. This is in your extra time. Oh, okay. Uh, but essentially, there's no reason, uh, no justification for ignoring these clear uh, divisions. Uh, Christian interpreters avoid having to do uh, identify them separately, uh, and they do this by combining the first period of seven weeks with the second period of 62 weeks. Uh, and it, there's many problems with that. But uh, yeah, long story short, Daniel was written in the second century BCE uh, and used older uh, uh, fourth, fifth, sixth century text to make up the first six chapters. And with that, I uh, give and up whatever seconds I have. No, you, you, you've crossed it by two seconds. <laughs> so, okay, sorry, that's sorry. All, no, that's all right. I think the boat, uh, thank you very much. Um, Dr. I, I just think that's also, the first time I've, I've used all of my time for an opening statement. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm really grateful to both you, Jim, and also to Dr. Josh for your opening statements as well. And yes, uh, the fact that both sides used uh, both of the uh, extra time as well. I'm glad we had that one minute extra time. We won't be doing that in the rebuttal period, though. So now we go to the rebuttal period. Uh, and we both sides have 10 minutes each between the two speakers uh, to respond to what the other side said in the opening statement. And I will highly, highly ask both sides that you would kindly respond to what the other side said in the opening statements uh, and not uh, maybe something else outside of them. So with that, uh, to the Christian side, Dr. Stephen Boyce and Jonathan Sheffield, your 10 minutes starts at your first word. Okay, so I'm probably going to address uh, three points that came from Dr. Josh and uh, Mr. Majors. Uh, first, I want to uh, bring up their appeal to the consensus or their appeal to the critical scholarship. Now, uh, despite that we provided ample evidence from Josephus and other historians weighing in favor of a 6th century BC dating, we are up against uh, a worldview or this consensus uh, which is sort of this Enlightenment era worldview that is dismissive of the Jewish histories. Now, Josephus was plagued by a related situation in his day, because the prototype of this worldview that we're coming up against today with the consensus actually originated with those Greeks who felt that the Jewish histories weren't worthy for consideration, and thereby did not believe Josephus's former accounts of the very ancient nate of the Jewish nation. Josephus reported that he cannot greatly wonder at those men who suppose that we must attend to none but Grecians when we're inquiring about the most ancient facts and must inform ourselves of their truth and from them only, while we must not believe ourselves or other men. For it's an absurd thing for the Greeks to vaunt themselves to be the only people that are acquainted with antiquity and have delivered the true accounts of those early times. In face of such a worldview, Josephus stated that he would not be led by vain opinions, but will make inquiry after truth from the facts themselves. And this is what we're trying to do as well. Now, Dr. Josh did bring up about uh, Darius uh, the Mede. Uh, he did want to, uh, he did bring some attention to it. So once again, we do have an account uh, from Daniel that does uh, cite a person uh, as Darius, okay? Now, we also have corroboration from Josephus. We do have an ancient historian 
that was published in an anti-Jewish time that basically said, but when Babylon was taken by Darius, and when he, with his kingsman Cyrus, had put an end to the dominion of the Babylonians, he was 62 years old, he was the son of Aristarchus, and had another name among the Greeks. So we do have an ancient historian that had access to the sources who was publishing in the anti-Jewish time that made this claim, um, which is important. Now, another thing that uh, Mr. Uh, Majors had brought up is uh, regarding uh, the Joachim, Joachim, uh, and, uh, hopefully that's correct, uh, Mr. Majors, but Jerome already addressed this in his response to uh, Profer uh, in the fourth century. And what Jerome says is, let no one therefore imagine that the Joachim in the beginning of Daniel is the same person as the one who is spelled Joachim in the commencement of Ezekiel. For the latter has chin as his final syllable, whereas the former has kim. As is for this reason, and the gospel according to Matthew, there seems to be a generation missing because of the second group of 14 extending to the time of Joachim and with the son of Joaziah. And the third group begins with Joachim, the son of Joachim. Being ignorant of this fact, Profer formulated a slander against the church, which only revealed his ignorance. Uh, and another thing that uh, we do need to address is the historicity question. Now, one of the uh, points that Jerome is uh, relaying from Profer's argument, and Profer was being educated at Athens, the student of Polonius, he was well acquainted with the history, but one of the uh, things that he said is Profer wasn't, uh, didn't really have any issues with the historicity. Someone who was from Tyre, educated at uh, Athens, did not make all these historical, said that there was problems with the history for the most part. Profer, according to Jerome, said the history up until the time was correct. It's anything afterwards this period was uh, conjured up. So uh, with that part, I would like to cede uh, my remaining time to Dr. Boyce. Tell me when, Samuel. Yep, uh, as soon as, yeah, you can go in now, yeah. Okay, uh, to kind of go into some of uh, what Jonathan had said, and, and I really appreciate the uh, time and, and demonstrations by both uh, Jim and Josh is really good. I actually enjoyed, uh, Jim, I learned some things of your arguments I actually never heard on the other end admit. So I've, I found that interesting, but I, I find that you trying to be fair too. So I appreciate uh, the list there. Uh, one thing that uh, Dr. Josh brought up that I, I would address as well as you mentioned that the conservative or fundamentalists and their basically their presupposition forces them to twist and make things uh, true that are false and false that are true. And I think that we would all agree that 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 criteria exists and that type of thinking does exist in the Christian world. And I think that Jonathan and myself would greatly oppose that consistency of just make it true because you want it to be true thinking. I don't think that's how we examine anything. Uh, I know that one of the things that there is a push in Christian scholarship is to leave as many presuppositions at home. 
uh, one of the statements made with uh, Dr. Jim Majors as well was that critical scholars have unbiased opinion and their historicity. I don't know of any scholar that has some level uh, or has no level of bias at all. We all have some level of bias. We all go into it with a worldview. We all go into it with a bias. We want to and try to and make it a practice to leave our biasnesses at the door. But even in that process, we all have a worldview. We just can't leave at the door. So I would say that there is no argument that makes one or the other right on the basis of presuppositions, we all have them. But I will say this, I appreciate both in critical scholarship, liberal and conservative scholarship, that there is a push in this generation that's speaking today to get to the bottom of the truth and find the source of truth. Whether that be through the scripture, historical arguments, archeological discoveries, history, history and its lineages and giving us the words that we're talking about today. It's a blessing. We have more information in this group than most generations have ever had before. And I think we should use that wisely. Going into this idea of consensus, with that being said, the consensus always changes. And I'm only 31 years old. And I know that when it comes to consensus on little small things, even in scholarship amongst Christian communities, or, or even the unbelieving world, the atheistic world, whatever you want to label, the consensus changes regularly. The consensus of scholarship at the earliest points, which has been in the demonstration of Jonathan and myself, the consensus was settled in, in and unwavered, including to places where Profer was involved in this. He's the only one that went against consensus at his time. But as Jonathan demonstrated, his issue is not with the historicity but rather with the text. You had different ideas coming in, Bell and Dragon. You had the songs of the Jewish boys. You had Susanna. These different stories coming in. He was fighting the Theodosian text. And Two so minutes. when Jerome was combating him, he was looking at it from that perspective. So even though he opposed the timing of Daniel based on really linguistics, the text that he was doing it from was not the text that we are arguing from today. He was using a Theodosian text and Jerome had combated him. And Eusebius did as well. Unfortunately, we don't have his volumes that dealt with that. Now, one of the interesting things that I would point out with the discussion is when we're talking about 1st, 2nd Maccabees, for example, uh, Jim, Dr. Jim brought up 1st, 2nd Maccabees. Though there are things there with um, Antiochus that are mentioned, they have set also in those same books the criteria for acceptance. This was the family that was really canonizing a collection of the canonizing sections through their high priestly positions to the point where Simon was given the rule of prince and high priest forever till a prophet would come. And that they had collected in the like manner of Nehemiah these books, they too would have considered any biblical text of writing that came into the equation, anything that was done under the name of prophecy would have gone through their jurisdiction. They rather placed Daniel and his writings at a later time and an ancient time of the fathers, but not allowed it to be a part of their day. They did not see it as contemporary. So when we're talking about Darius, there are possibilities. Xenophon, or whether we're talking about the, uh, Josephus's opinion, they had guys that they marked that they assumed would have been this guy. 30 seconds. Under different names, under different aliases, or whatever that may be. The key that we're looking for in the middle of the second century would be where are the potential candidates who could have written a book like this or collected older texts in the first six chapters 
brought in modern ideas, Hellenistic worldviews, compiled this text, put it into circulation without the acknowledgement of those who were in charge, the Maccabean family. These men had and no knowledge of time. this. We see yeah. that when we come to Qumran, we end up in the same situation. The scholars at Qumran were completely... All right, uh, we're going to call time on this one, Stephen. Unfortunately, I hate to cut you off, but... Uh, yeah, the time we've crossed, uh, we've crossed time by uh, about 10 seconds. Um, so with that, uh, so really sorry about that. And we will be moving over to the ATS side uh, for, your cross, uh, for your rebuttal period, your 10 minute rebuttal period. And uh, because uh, the Christian side did cross by 10 seconds, I'll, I'll give you guys the additional 10 seconds for that. Uh, so with that, uh, we will begin uh, at your first word. Okay, do you, you want me to start, Dr. Josh? Yeah, you, you have much okay. more to say than I do. Um, so first thing, you know, the, the debate's about, you know, prophecy versus forgery. And while I believe that forgery is a strong word, prophecy is clearly the, uh, the, the claim. But w- what does Daniel predict that isn't already in other canonical texts? That's, I mean, that, that, would, that would be, be my question. Uh, and the early comparison by Jonathan to the Homeric text, um, I would I would say that they aren't the same genre as Daniel. Uh, you know, uh, epics aren't the same thing as apocalypses. Um, oh, and uh, I, sorry, I I meant to uh, thank Jonathan and uh, and uh, Dr. Stephen Boyce uh, so much for your uh, uh, introduction and your kind words. I uh, appreciate that. Um, so. When talking about Josephus, that, that's one thing that I, I definitely want to point out. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't remember who mentioned it, but uh, Josephus, you know, mentions Alexander the Great and Alexander the Great coming to Jerusalem. And it says that he's being met by Jadua, uh, a, a high priest. But the Talmud, you know, it, it presents it a little differently. It says that he was met by Simeon the Just. Uh, the uh, who would be the grandson of Jadua, also a, a high priest in a town about 40 miles northwest. Uh, um, so that's I found, found that kind of kind of funny. Um, Jerome addressing Jehoiakim, uh, Jerome says that it's a, it's a code, this this Jeconias, uh, but he's only reading the uh, the the Greek and, and the Latin, that's, 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 that's all that he's using. Uh, you know, you don't have those, those, those difficulties uh, whenever you're, you're reading Daniel. Uh, and, and regardless, that, that's not, even if it was a code, that, that still doesn't fix any of the difficulties. Uh, biases are not preventable, but certain presuppositions are preventable. Uh, the canon was definitely not closed by 424 BCE. Um, and as far as the Maccabeans gathering the text, the one who gathered them was Judas Maccabeus, and it was done in about 167 BCE. Uh, and there's no reason why the Maccabees would be against the book of Daniel, because it completely supported their cause. The, 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 the Maccabees were, were, were the, the force against Hellenization of Judaism. They, they would have definitely used it. In fact, in my dissertation, one of my, my, my main theory and theory that, that's, uh, that 
I don't think would be is going to be rejected by very many Daniel scholars is that it was compiled for the purpose of encouraging not only uh, uh, hope and 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 uh, and and some sort of uh, uh, something to look forward to by Jews under Antiochian and persecution, but to also build and 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 bolster this this uh, this rebellion against the the Hellenization of Jerusalem against you know allowing the uh, the Jewish children to go to the gymnasium and to uh, be seen naked and to ha- and Jewish men uh, attempting to reverse their circumcisions or not getting circumcised at all, not circumcising their, their male children, uh, you know, uh, offering libations to a, a, a foreign God. You know, th- this was something that was happening and something that was encouraged at the time. Uh, you know, the, everything that is in the book of Daniel, like in chapters eight and chapters 11, in chapter nine, all, all these these references are, like Dr. Josh said, the closer that it gets to the the second century, towards the time of the the, the Seleucid period, the the more accurate that it gets. And as you get back through the Hellenistic and into the Persian and Babylonian periods, it gets much less accurate. So I mean, I I just would like some sort of explanation for why Daniel, if a sixth century BCE author, why he doesn't know what is going on in the sixth century BCE, the most inarguably important and most impactful events of his life. Dr. Josh. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you can, you can keep going. Uh, So, I mean, so that it's clear, like late second temple Judaism uh, and obviously first, second, third, fourth century CE is like not my field of expertise. Um, so, you know, m- much more of what I would feel comfortable talking about would be actual, um, you know, historical problems that occur in the book itself. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about what was said in the rebuttal, um, so I think, again, Josephus is not my expertise, and I'll stop after this and see the rest of my time back to Jim. Um, but, like, I just wrote a, a book on, um, and one of the chapters is on the book of Daniel. And I say in the chapter, like, I'm getting ready to go into stuff that's not my field of expertise, but here I'm going to cite reputable scholars because this is what the book is all about. And I cite Peak and Green and I think Goldstein. Uh, who all talk about this um, this thing that uh, both Jim and Jonathan referred to with, uh, you know, Alexander supposedly coming to uh, to Jerusalem. You know, and essentially, I mean, it's, it's like there's just no question about this. From a historical standpoint, uh, you know, jo- Josephus is known, uh, again, amongst the, uh, the, the scholars in the field, it appears, um, that the earlier you go back with him, you know, the more that he's relying on sources that maybe aren't that reliable. Um, and then of course, when you get into the first century into his, into his time, uh, it gets more reliable. So I think taking Josephus sort of on the whole, uh, for any historian, I think is ancient historian is, is problematic. Any historian is problematic, but, uh, again, not my, not my field of expertise. So Jim, if you had a couple more things you want to talk about, 
that's uh, oh awesome. no, I, I would uh, yeah, I kind of just blew over the whole uh, how unreliable Josephus was seen by his uh, not only his his contemporaries but but later uh, you know later people who uh, even historiographers you know whenever they're studying these ancient historians and, and their texts you know they you know the Josephus is right up there like the top ten of like the most unreliable. Uh, um, but yeah, other, other than that, uh, I mean, that's that really just, that's about it. Certainly the rest of my time to, uh, I guess the Q and a, because we really don't need any more time anywhere else. I don't think. Uh, right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Josh and uh, Jim for that. Um, now we, uh, uh, done with the rebuttal period. We are going to go to the cross-examinations uh, and we'll begin with uh, our Christian side. Uh, Menno, who will be going first for the cross-examination? Who rather will be cross-examining the other side? Is it uh, Stephen or Jonathan? Uh, you're muted, Jonathan. Oh, I apologize. I guess uh, I can uh, I go first with my questions. Sure. And I think uh, for uh, Dr. Josh or um, uh, uh, Dr. Major, since you're basically almost there. Oh, no, um, no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, I, uh, shall, uh, I, shall I start the time now, Jonathan? Oh, oh yeah, give me one second. I was just going to oh, ask no them. Oh, uh, go ahead. Would you prefer me just to address a question and whoever wants to pick it up answer, or would you prefer me just to ask individually? Which uh, would you prefer, Dr. Josh? If I don't know it, I'm going to say, Jim, go for it. So, <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Right. And, and by the way, Jonathan, it's, it's, it's your time. You get to uh, decide how you want to go about it. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Uh, your time begins uh, at your first word, Jonathan. Okay. If historical accuracy is a measure we are applying to discredit the traditional date and authorship of Daniel, why wouldn't this measure also apply to Herodotus, Suetonius, Plutarch, or even Joseph Smith? In those cases, no one doubts that they were the authors of the work or the time when they wrote it. So why would we with Daniel? Well, you want to jammer. So, the, but there are certain aspects of each of those that are questioned. Uh, whether it's the the place, the people that are are mentioned. Uh, I mean, so why can't Daniel be questioned about what time that it's being purported to have been been written in? You know, we we wouldn't take Herodotus at his word for for, for some of his texts, just like we wouldn't take uh, Homer at his word for for some of his texts. Um, but both can be uh, relied on as, uh, uh, I mean, in, in certain ways that they are reliable, um, but can't be said to be reliable in the information that they transmit on the surface. Um, is, does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Uh, next question. Since a forged work or any publication uh, requires a forger, uh, can you provide any written source from the ancient world identifying a person of interest or a suspect for your Maccabean hypothesis given that Josephus stated that there was a full history of the time that was available and which is still available today. Um, I would say that it's only by a stroke of pure luck that we even have porphyries and it's only because it's preserved in the, uh, the writings of, uh, of Jerome's commentary on the book of Daniel. Um, 
many uh, books that were uh, that 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 provided uh, contrary views to the uh, what was considered uh, you know Christian Judaism or later Christianity uh, was uh, burned starting in the, about the fourth century, either burned or banned. Uh, so I mean, it's just it's just because that's the only one that survives. I don't think that's that constitutes uh, um, coming to the conclusion that there are no other uh, contemporary um, disagreements with it. Now, since uh, Plutarch and Arian composed histories of Alexander after Josephus's publication of the Antiquities and wrote it at a time that was hostile to the Jews, uh, given the, uh, the war Hadrian uh, was in uh, in 132, which would have welcomed the repudiation of Josephus's account of the Jews and Alexander. Why don't we have a counter narrative published in the ancient world from these historians or the families of the Ptolemies that were still around in Egypt or the Secludians if the report was propaganda? Are you talking about the book of Daniel? Well, I'm talking about Josephus. Yeah, Josephus's account of uh, Alexander and the Jews, uh, or the Jews' presentation of the Book of Daniel uh, to mm -hmm. Alexander. Plutarch and Arian wrote afterwards. They were writing at a very anti-Jewish time. Uh, they, were, they were court historians. It would have made, uh, it would have served them well repudiating Josephus if this report, because Josephus was attacked on a number of things, but, uh, and it, uh, this account was widespread. So why don't we have any of the reports from the people that, you know, the descendants of Alexander, the Ptolemies, the Secludians, why don't we have any reports from them uh, who were descendants that said, hey, this is uh, propaganda. This is crazy what they're saying. Well, I, I don't know about just coming out and saying straight out propaganda, just because I, I don't think that at the time that Josephus's writings were really important to anybody, but the the Jews. I don't think that the, the the Ptolemies, you know, were really that interested in it, you know, at at, at the time that everything's going on. Uh, but I, I would say that um, the, the the Talmud uh, there there's a Talmudic text that is that mentions the exact same thing about Alexander the Great uh, wanting to uh, to to meet the high priest, and the only difference is is that in the Talmud that. Uh, Alexander the Great is met by the grandson of, uh, wait, let me make sure that I'm saying that right. Uh, yeah, by the grandson of, of Jadua, who is who Josephus says that met, uh, met the high priest Simeon in Jerusalem. Uh, so it, it gets it off by one, by two high priests. So unless Alexander met the high priest at two separate times and said the same thing to the high priest two separate times, uh, then there, I mean, there's, there's clearly a, a uh, what I would consider a, uh, if not uh, contemporary, it's contemporary enough. Um, and then you have to get first and second Maccabees, you know, uh, second Kings, you have biblical texts that, uh, that already talk about what's what's going on, that what Daniel's talking about, uh, all all these events that they have knowledge of. So, uh, next question is, well, if, if that's all true, how do we explain that uh, Alexander 
uh, let a Persian ally um, did, did not take Jerusalem. Every ancient uh, civilization did. The Secludians, after Alexander's death, uh, Ptolemy went in there and uh, seized Jerusalem. Uh, we have the Secludians, of course, another descendant. Uh, the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians tried to attack it. And uh, the two accounts uh, from two of the greatest, uh, um, Cyrus the Great, who was purposely uh, seen a copy of Isaiah, and uh, Josephus's account of how do we explain that in, in regards to the why was uh, Jerusalem spared and no one else was? Uh, you know, I, I really. I really don't know the answer to that. There are many positive answers. I think it'd be good if maybe like if, if Plutarch gave us a definitive answer of why Jerusalem was spared. Uh, but unfortunately, all I believe all that we have are just uh, uh, Jewish uh, Jewish narratives, and and they all they all differ. Um, you know whether they're from uh, the from uh, uh, with their Samaritan text or uh, Midrash or Talmud. There's there's a lot of different traditions as to what happened, when it happened, and who it happened with. I, I don't, I, I really don't know the answer to that as far as what happened historically. Dr. Josh, would, what do you think? Certainly not my, not my period. <laughs> uh, how much time do I have left? You, you have um, one, uh, you have two minutes, 20 seconds. Uh, now, I know we haven't really gone uh, through this much, but I would just uh, like to ask a question on linguistics, if that's okay. Um, now, since the linguistic profiles of text that we have Daniel may not be that of the original author due to uh, modernization of language over time, just as probably the text of Homer that came down to Cicero and we have today may not represent a profile from Pisistratus, but maybe a closer time of Alexander where they did a lot of um, editing. Why would a linguistic approach offer more reliable testimony than that of Josephus and the Jews on the dating of Daniel? Sorry, what was the last part? Um, why would a linguistic approach offer more reliable testimony to dating uh, Daniel uh, than testimony from Josephus and the Jews on the date. As far as the book of Daniel is, is concerned, um, it's my quote-unquote expert opinion uh, that, that, uh, that the linguistic arguments alone are not enough to date the book of Daniel. So I don't, I don't think that the, the, the linguistic arguments are the strongest arguments for a later date. Okay. Guys, you have one minute left. Uh, I, I think that's it. I, I'll go ahead and cede my time to Dr. Boyce. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for that uh, cross-examination. We will uh, pass the time to Dr. Stephen Boyce. Or oh, do, do you guys, would you guys prefer if you go one, one and then bounce back? Do you have a preference in that? No, he can, he can go ahead, that's fine. Dr. Sure. Josh? No, I'm good. All right, okay. Uh, so I will pass the time to Dr. Stephen Boyce. Uh, you've got um, 10 minutes to cross-examine the other side. And uh, yep, time starts at your first word, Stephen. Uh, you're muted, by the way. Um, one of the statements you made, uh, Jim, was about the idea 
of the Maccabees closing the canon really around that time. Would well, you not, say, not, oh, sorry, go ahead. Would you say that they were so open to the canon? It wasn't closing. It was more closing at that time than it was already closed around the time Josephus said that it was. Uh, I, well, I didn't say that that's when canon closed. I'm saying that that uh, the, in according to the Bible, that that was when Judas Maccabeus collected up what was considered their the, the whole their holy scriptures or our uh, scriptures that were in, um, that were important to them. But they would have not have added any more into the canonical status in their day. Why wouldn't they? They said the prophets were dead and that they were awaiting a prophet. They were in a transition period. Were, were, would you say they were in a transition period? That's why they made Simon the high priest forever until a faithful prophet would come. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, there are a lot of scholars that believe that the book of Daniel is a, a, a Maccabean production, that it was produced by uh, by the Maccabees or a, a supporter of, of the Maccabees. So, I mean, I, and it fully supports their cause more than any other uh, biblical text. So I don't see any reason why they wouldn't, especially if Judas Maccabeus is collecting these, uh, you know, towards the uh, the towards, you know, 167, towards the time of uh, the late dating of the book of Daniel. But would you, but would you say they've already established that Daniel was a part of the ancient fathers, as they stated in chapter two, which is actually the father of the Maccabean sons speaking there, that it was an ancient thing that took place at a different time, not, not, not so much at their time, but an ancient time given to the same status of Abraham and David and Elijah Sure, is talking about these these characters, um, like the other three characters. We don't have any evidence for Daniel as a historical character, and everything points to him being a a, a legendary literary creation, um, or or possibly um, a uh, uh, possibly a character that's that's influenced by the 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 Ugaritic uh, character. Uh, I think we just lost uh, Jim. There. I think um, you froze up, Jim. I, I didn't get that last part. I think your computer froze up on us. See there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jim, if you could just repeat from the word Ugaritic. I think, and I think you're maybe muted as well now. Uh oh. Testing. Oh yeah, yeah. You're fine now. Yeah. Could you? Okay. Just... Okay. Sorry. Did, did you guys? Did you catch all that? We missed the last part. We missed maybe the last. Uh, comment you were talking about Ugaritic Dan L. Oh, yeah, um, or the, the, the Ugaritic character, uh, uh Dan L. Um, it could, could possibly be uh, a character inspired by him. Sorry, there's a storm going on right now, and I live in the in, in the sticks, so my, my unacceptable, is, yeah. Well, get over it, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry. Oh, um, no, you're fine. So, to me, what language if if a book was written in the second century, what would the likelihood of that language to have been given the rest of the apocryphal books in that timeline? What language would have it have been written in? Um, I would say in either Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, uh, most likely Greek. So if it would have been more likely in Greek, which most of the apocryphal works are, save maybe the Syriac, um, what why would a work 
of Daniel be done both in Hebrew, transition to Aramaic, all the way up to chapter eight, and then trans back into Hebrew, would you say that was would have been the original text or it would have been the translation of the original text in Greek? Which, which order would you put them in? Well, I would say it would first be in the Aramaic and Hebrew and then in the Greek because it wouldn't be really conducive to the acceptance of it as a 6th century BCE text as it's uh, purported to be. So, so you'd have to or you guys have to admit that this would have been a unique situation out of all those apocryphal works where all of them were pretty much in Greek and this would have shown up in Hebrew in the middle of, of a Hellenized culture where the writings had started transitioning into the Greek, including books like 1st, 2nd Maccabees. And third and fourth Maccabees, for that matter. I mean, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think that just the fact that there is Hellenization present in the 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 writings of the uh, uh, Book of Daniel shows that it had to have happened at least before the conquest of Alexander the Great in the fourth century. Yeah, but even the the push of Hellenis. Would you agree that the push of the Hellenization is what moved the Septuagint writers? in Alexandria to place a Bible together because the native tongue of Hebrew and had pretty much almost disappeared in multiple cultures of Israel where not even Jews knew their own native language, except for maybe phrases or words or segments. And this was the big push by why the Septuagint came to rise by the time we're in the Maccabean period. Well, that's not, that's not completely true. I mean, it still existed in a, in the liturgical sense. So in a liturgical right. setting, it still existed. So, but but that, that definitely doesn't mean that that there weren't scribes who knew how to write it, that there weren't people who knew how to speak it, that there weren't people who knew what it uh, what 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 they were what they were hearing, um, and uh, I mean, and you know, and the fact that Aramaic and Hebrew they aren't all that dissimilar, um, you know, that also lends credence to the 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 likelihood that they maintain their 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 mother tongue and their their uh, earlier traditions uh orally yeah and to be clear that that's what i'm saying that, that there was only small segments that would have been trained really in the hebrew language anymore like you said liturgical like the priests certainly would have the levites would have definitely had that but the communities as a whole were losing that part that was even happening well, at points in nehemiah's day well, the, the the tradition holds that the entire Torah was uh, was uh, was remembered at you know in, in the oral tradition that and that the oral tradition actually it, it goes even beyond what the Torah says. There's there's uh, according to to Jewish tradition, the the Torah is only just a, a, a portion of the oral tradition. Yeah, and and I typically make a, a large distinction between oral and written as well, because the Jews were all about memorization, but many of them that were memorized were also partially illiterate or mostly illiterate. Writing would have been another segment, but kind of going into this transition, so they're writing in a Hellenized world. Just a few years later from that time, you have Qumran. You have the scribes of Qumran. You find these, these teachings of Daniel uh, in this commentary, for example, like the Midrash of Eschatology, and in that Midrash, it's stating that he was both a writer and a prophet. Would they have been unaware of what was taking place in this time period in the second century, where they have been wrongly assessing Daniel's belief, who he is? Like, okay, they're calling him a prophet and a writer. And that would have been within just about 100, under 100 years from their writings that are in Qumran Caves, 
So where, where do they fit into this? Because they didn't perceive him as a contemporary. They perceived him as a part of those that would have been equal to the writings of 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, Hosea, Isaiah. When in dealing with the aspects of Messiah, they had him in that same category. So that kind of stays consistent uh, with can what... I, can I please just request that we, since it's a cross-examination, we could just phrase it in the form of a question that would be really yeah. helpful. Thanks for yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it back around. Yeah. So when you when you look at Qumran, Jim, where do they come into the equation and go, all right, that looks fitting to what the Maccabeans were saying about the prophets being dead. They'd already recognized something being in the past and how they categorically did it. Right. Uh, so when it comes to the preservation of the book of Daniel in the Qumranic text, there are only uh, eight manuscripts that that preserve it. Um, uh, Daniel 12 is completely absent. Most of Daniel 9 is completely absent. Uh, I, I believe every text that we have is fragmentary. I, I don't uh, I don't think that we have one full chapter. I think everything is uh, the, the most the biggest run that we have, I think, is like five verses. Um, so, I mean, one minute. But but the, the fact that it's preserved in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't say much to me personally, especially when you take into account uh, that there are several other second century texts that are uh, that, that we find in uh, uh, amongst this this collection of the Estines. But would you say that that's equal to what they did? Because the fragments I'm talking about is not actually of the text. It's it's of a commentary of the text, and they quote from Daniel 12. And my question is. They're giving that statement of Daniel. They're calling him a prophet and a writer, which would have been within 100 30 years. 30 seconds. With, which would have been in 100 years. They're giving him commentary equal to Deuteronomy, Hosea, et cetera, in these right. Midrash eschatology fragments. Got you, got you. So uh, you're talking about 4Q147 or 157? Right, right. Right, right. And uh, A and uh, I think it's 47 and 48. Um so those are, if I remember correctly, they are from around 75 to 90 BCE. Um, and right, right. so, I mean, that's what, uh, 80 years after the, the, uh, the, the second century uh, date of the book of Daniel. So, I mean, I, I don't see an, an issue there uh, at all. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, both sides, uh, for this really fascinating cross-examination. Uh, yeah, with that, we move over to our uh, Dr. Josh Bowen and also to Jim Majors. Uh, uh, which one of you, uh, you know who will be going first? Go ahead, Josh. Jim. All right, Come on, Jim. man. You've been, you've been volunteered, <laughs> so, so, Jim, to sorry. go first. I've, yeah, I feel like we're, uh, we've, we've left my field behind, man. I feel like it's all you. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. Okay, so, uh, Jim, yeah, your 10 minutes starts at your first word, Jim. Okay. So a question for, for either one, whoever wants to answer it. Um, what is the prophecy in the book of Daniel that, that you believe is a prophecy? Like what, 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 what do you, what, what verse specifically? Well, I, I, I think there's a couple of things that we have to account for. And I think one of the things that Josephus reported on Profer is Profer realized that these events did occur. Now, obviously, uh, some of the bigger uh, prophecies, first of the, uh, the Persian Empire, um, not only that, but the prediction of Alexander uh, the Great. Can, can I can I re re rephrase my question? Yeah, sure. 
Um, can you give me an example of a, uh, a prophecy in the book of Daniel that uh, is not an event already recorded in canon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think one, one of the others when we talk about uh, uh, the prediction of the, uh, uh, the, the Iron Man with clay feet, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, we also under uh, which uh, obviously no one even in the second century BC would have known uh, to predict uh, not only the rise, but the fall of the Roman Empire as well around 410 AD. Uh, the other thing that we have to deal with uh, from prophecy is the fact of the destruction of the temple, uh, which uh, not only is he uh, predicting uh, the cutting off of the Messiah, but the time of the destruction of the temple, which uh, doesn't fit um, uh, the secluding king, Antiochus, going in and, and desolating it, but uh, a complete destruction of the temple, which we see in 70 AD. Uh, so those are very clear uh, prophecies uh, that uh, we see come to realization uh, from the book of Daniel. Okay, uh, so two things. I guess I'll uh, mention the, the, the Roman Empire first. Um, what what makes you believe or what, how do you, uh, how is it that you come to interpret the, the iron and, cl and clay feet being uh, re representative of the Roman Empire when in at least three other places, does Daniel explicitly says that it's Greece? Well, um, you know, I mean, if you think, you know, there shall be a fourth empire like iron, uh, just as iron breaks to pieces and overcomes all else, so it shall break into pieces and shatter. So um, now uh, from Jerome, uh, who understood that this was the, clearly refers to the Romans, is the Iron Empire, which breaks into pieces and overcomes all others. Uh, he describes that its feet and toes are partly of iron and partly of earthenware, a fact most clearly demonstrated at the present time, uh, for just as it was first nothing stronger or hardier than in the Roman realm, it's also in these last days there's nothing more feeble. Uh, since, we required, since the Romans required the assistance of barbarian tribes, both in their civil wars and against foreign nations. So um, that's how he understood uh, that being uh, Rome. And that's, you know, one of the things that's uh, uh, consistent throughout is identifying it with Rome. But why would the, why would the author of Daniel though, like in, in the one who's, who, who's writing that, who's writing it, uh, mention the uh greece as the the fourth kingdom well and, and that's where the interpretation uh comes down to because uh, he, he mentioned you know the babylonians uh the uh persians um you know uh the greeks and who is uh that that fourth empire uh now profer uh interpreted that and um uh, and some of the jews as they understood that as israel um but, uh, you know, Jerome uh, and other Christian writers of this period uh, has traditionally understood that as Rome. Yeah, so uh, over time, you know, people have interpreted differently. I mean, you have, uh, 
like you said, you have people who, who interpret it as as Rome. Um, Hippolytus in the uh, early third century, um, I, I believe, uh, I believe early third century, around two hundred, um, has uh, I believe is the first Christian who uses Rome as the uh, the the fourth kingdom. It's because at that time, uh, you know, Rome was already coming into power. Greece was already just a thing of the past. So in order to apply it to their time, uh, Hippolytus, of course, uh, interpreted it like that. And you might think, you know, oh, well, you know, that's just, just a coincidence. You know, it, it could, there could be another explanation. Well, sure. But, but then you see a pattern of this happening as time goes on when the Roman empire becomes obsolete, then it's the Islamic empire. And then it's, uh, you even have some more modern interpretations that uh, use uh, Russia or the United States or, you know, some other wackadoodle interpretation. You know, I think that it's just a, a, a product of the theology and that we should take Daniel at face value instead of trying to interpret it in the light of uh, tradition or later interpretations. Jim, uh, is, uh, yeah, I just want to ask if you could phrase it in the form of a question. That would be really helpful. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I apologize. I apologize. I, I forgot. Uh, Dr. Josh, uh, you have any questions? I suck at this. Oh, no, actually, well, I, I have another one. Um, can I jump in on that one, Jim? <clears throat> sure, go for it. Yeah. So <clears throat> with the interpretation, I think we all agree that there's been different theories early and later, like you said, Hippolytus or et cetera, um, about that fourth kingdom. I, I, I do think that you would agree that there are four kingdoms, not three, whether it just explicitly says Rome or no Rome, but we still have to deal with the statement that the, the temple would be not defiled, but destroyed. So if 70 AD, let's just say Rome is out of the picture, let's just eliminate them. So if 70 AD, the actual temple was destroyed, even if that were predicted in 164, 167 AD, or BC, excuse me, it's still either an awesome coincidence or some, whether it's Rome that belongs there or not, the Antiochus of Epiphany's desecration cannot be the fulfillment of what he said there because he didn't destroy the temple. Uh, Titus did. So there's still an act of prophecy, even if we eliminate Rome and not get distracted by that fourth kingdom, we have a temple destroyed. It's either coincidental or there may be something to that. Would you agree with that, I guess? And it's not me asking you a question. I should stop. But I would say that there's an argument to be made there. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that you know, Daniel 9, you know, it, it's like I said, you know, I, I think the focus is on the, this last week. I, I don't think that the rest of it has anything uh, to do with Jim, that. I just, just want to ask if you could, if you could just, just throw another oh. question to them. That would oh, be sorry. really helpful. Sorry. Yeah. Well, well, okay. Uh, all right. So, okay. well, let me, let me push them a little bit on. So sure. I think, Jim, what you were asking, if Daniel specifically says in chapter 8 and chapters 10 through 12 that this is Greece, I mean, specifically says that, um, and the events that are described in Daniel 11 are specifically those of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Um, and the language that is seen in 9, 10 to 12, 8, and probably 7 as well, connect these four events. Did Daniel get it wrong? Like Second Estros says? Like, did he, did he not understand it? Was it not revealed to him that it was Rome? 
And that's for anybody. Oh, sorry. You, you know, I think with these uh, prophecies, uh, once one, once again, we had, uh, you know, uh, not to, not to berate uh, Profer of Tyre. Um, he, he, he was brilliant in his own class. Uh, he was one of the educated uh, pagans of the time. Uh, he just didn't believe in moon people. And he was very familiar with the history of the of the period um, and the ancient uh, citations from those that recorded the event. He understood what it meant that these things came to fulfillment. Now, he, he, uh, he understood that at his time. Um, and which, 30 seconds. Uh, um, okay, um, who was the king of Jerusalem when it fell? Cassie, about you, seconds well, was was Daniel correct that. about who the king of Jerusalem was when it fell? Or the king of Babylon when it fell? Or uh, when Jerusalem fell or when Babylon fell? Well, I, I, I would have to say whether the, if the report is 2nd century or the report is uh, from 6th century, they would well, have it, a better... It, well, it doesn't matter uh, when Jim, the report's the time from. Is up, Jim. Uh, yeah, it, it the time is up, Jim. Uh, just allow him a few... So okay. Really sorry about that, Jim. Oh, yeah. no, we'll, allow, we'll allow Jonathan to just briefly answer that in less than 10 seconds, and then the time... We'll just continue true. to your time, Josh, for cross-examination. But go ahead, Jonathan. Well, yeah, I, I would say that uh, uh, the book of Daniel is correct. Once again, we are looking from history at 2,600 years after the event, uh, there was full histories of that time available to men like Josephus, who was able to go back and write and cooperate on that time using the histories of the Babylonians, uh, people of those area that had the information from their time. So the question is, who, uh, why would, uh, or not, I can't ask questions, but I, I would say that uh, they would have had the better information. All right, uh, Josh, the time is yours. Uh, yeah. yeah, so and so I guess this this sort of leads me maybe methodologically here, and again, this is just for either of you, but Jonathan, since you were saying it, that sounds, do you then trust or distrust um, archaeological excavations um, or, you know, like we didn't have cuneiform sources, uh, up until what a little over a hundred years ago, um, so you know, Assyriology as a field has you know blown up what we know about the ancient Near East. Um, so, do, do, do you think that first century historians uh, that you would you would trust what they say over archaeological data or textual evidence that we now have from archaeological data or material culture? Well, remember, uh, this position that we're debating is from uh, Profer of Tyre. Uh, this is not something that uh, modern uh, consensus actually came to on their own. Uh, this, this is from the pagan. This, uh, this view does not come out of modern archaeology in the sense it originated with Profer. But what I would say, archaeology is important. Uh, it does aid in evidence. I mean, for many years, uh, 
you know, there was information that we didn't have that does come to light. But remember, when we're dealing with uh, archaeology, we're dealing with exhibits that we have to interpret. Uh, historians, you know, go and provide testimonial from examining records of their periods as well. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, that uh, they had records to sources that are not extant today. Uh, and this was published in a time that could have been easily uh, disputed uh, from the people that were still there. They had a library at Alexandria. Uh, uh, if you think about it, the, the book of Daniel was translated into Greek. It was put into their language and it was spread across their civilizations. It was ample opportunity uh, for the period that was much closer than we are to make that analysis. I mean, we, we did, uh, they had many historians at that time and even afterwards that could have easily debunked Daniel that was already circulated throughout their society in Greek. Would it not make sense with things like the burning of the Library of Alexandria and the burning of pagan texts that perhaps the only reason that we do have porphyry is because it was preserved in a Christian text? Well, you know, and here's the thing, uh, the Christians are responding. So we, so if, if we look at what's happening with uh, Profer, yeah, a lot of the information we get are, are solely from the Christians. So what uh, they would have been out there, if someone would have attacked them earlier, we would have had those reports as well. Um, and this is the thing, there's there many attacks that came out uh, Josephus reports about it. Uh, he was attacked, and that's what prompted him to write against Apian, because he was writing against the Greek uh, Hellenistic philosophers that were denying that the state of Israel was actually ancient. So uh, against Apian is actually responding to it. And we have many uh, reports out there. So uh, I mean, we're talking about well-documented particular times that they had access to these histories. I mean, Arian is writing in the second century, giving us full histories from that time. Oh, Dr. Boyce, you want to jump well, in? I was going to just add to that, to kind of what Jim was saying. I mean, it, it could be said that way too, but we also know that Eusebius wrote entire sections against Profer as well, but we don't have his apart from Jerome either. So it's not that, you know, just Jerome only saved the, you know, the guy that was wrong or the guy he didn't disagree with. We wish we had Eusebius' side of it too. History loses things, and that's why archaeology, I believe, is very important as well. But there were early testimony of historians, not just Josephus, in agreement with timelines like Jonathan demonstrated in his opening. Uh, you, had, you had the Greeks coming in saying, hey, these are similar events. There are semantical differences because we all agree historians aren't perfect in all their details. But they're all saying the same things happened or didn't happen. And they were a lot earlier. And we know the later time goes on, information gets lost when we go through times of history. Why do you think the, the Talmud says that uh, Alexander the Great was met by Simeon the Just outside of Jerusalem? And Josephus says that Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem and was met by Jadua, the, uh, the grandfather of uh, Simeon the Just. Yeah, and so, and once again, what we don't have wrong, and just like in any investigation or witnesses, there are going to be uh, minor details, but the statement of facts that Alexander met with the high priest is consistent, um, and 
and and and what that shows from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, which was probably compiled a, a little time later after Josephus, is the fact that it's an independent report. Now, if his report would have been exact to what Josephus says, then he was either cribbing off Josephus. But the fact that there is some slight differences in the account, uh, what we have there is uh, an independent source that said that okay. the Jews met with Alexander, which gives credibility to the case. It doesn't take away from it. The the book of Daniel in chapter 9, uh, there is a... A, uh, a a prophecy following Daniel's prayer, uh, verses uh, 24 through 27. Uh, there are three clear divisions here. Uh, there's a period of seven weeks, a period of, uh, of uh, 62 weeks, and then a period of, uh, of one week. Uh, what are the divisions of these? Where does it start? Where does it end? Yeah, and, and I'm not going to say that's uh, outside of my uh, right. And and there's been a lot of a uh, lot of differences in these views, even among uh, the Christian scholarship between Jerome and Eusebius and others. Um, I once again I would say that's a little outside of my depth uh, in interpreting uh, things. You know, from my standpoint, um, there are some. Uh, if it was written in six century BC, then he predicted things that he could not have known. Um, and uh, would you also say that he predicted things uh, incorrectly? Well, it's, some of the things are uh, obviously in the eye of a holder when we're looking at them. Uh, obviously, Jerome, Eusebius, Polinarius, uh, Hippolytus, uh, there are different things that came under discussion, even for Josephus, the way he uh, understood that. So there have been differences mm -hmm. of opinion in some of the uh, prophecies that I don't, you know. So, so in, in the in the context of, of uh, the, the, Deuteron the Deuteronomist anyways, uh, uh, then we shouldn't take him to be a, uh, a prophet. Um, being as he, if he gets one thing wrong, uh, then the, then it's, it's not the word of God. Well, uh, you know, one of the things is 50 is, seconds left. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no short of time. Well, well, the thing is they understood that it was composed in the spirit of prophecy. The Jews believed that that book was produced at that time. Um, and, uh, the problem from that standpoint is uh, the documents at that time did not get in. Uh, and we have a, a superstitious tradition amongst the Jews that they wouldn't have added anything in. They felt that he had predicted prophecy. Um, if, he, if, if the Jews believed that he was a prophet, why wasn't he included in the writings of the prophets, but instead in the, in the writings? It's later. Yes. Yeah, now that, that was, now Josephus actually, uh, oh, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, well, Josephus does classify him with the prophets, not with the writings. Uh, that was uh, done afterwards. Right. The writers of Qumran, the writers of Qumran also placed him as a prophet. 
All right. Thank you very much, uh, guys, for that intense cross-examination uh, that we've had. And this has been really, really, really helpful. Um, and a lot of people have benefited from it, judging from the comments we're getting from the live chat. Uh, and with that, we move to the discussion phase, because again, uh, what happened in, in the cross-examination is that we tended to get a little bit of discussion. We do have a time for discussions, 30 minutes to be precise. Uh, we'll be, this will be free and, um, uh, yeah. This will be, free. let me just try and reset my clock. Okay, so for 30 minutes, our time starts now and I'll open it to any one of you to just have an open discussion, questions, uh, uh, comments, I'm, anything. I'm just make make one comment. I'll let you guys respond and I promise I'll shut up and let Dr. Josh talk because I know that's why everybody showed up anyways. <laughs> uh, um, so when it when it comes to prophecy, like we're talking about things that are are predictable or, or that, that are that, that have that have predictive power. Um, so I would ask, why is it that a sixth-century author would get all of these things wrong, like all these these events that 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 uh, that he lived through? Why would he get the characters, the times, the places, everything wrong about major e events? Because uh, honestly, that that's one of the probably the biggest obstacle that keeps me from having a a sixth-century uh, uh, view of the text. Well, I. You know, a, a lot of what we try to piece together uh, from the historical accounts, and I mean, us today, is we're trying to gather what historical information that we have available to, to put it together. So, um, you know, it, and once again, it comes down to this view that, um, you know, why is there this view that uh, the Jewish writings, while it may contain some things that are outside of their worldview, are not able to aptly uh, provide an assessment because uh, some of the uh, questions that you have around the historicity is either through arguments from silence or from other reports from other historians uh, that may seem to contradict or view, and once again, I, I wanna to get to the facts as well, but the question is, we do have historians uh, of the period that are writing, why is why are the Jewish writings uh, get this mark that they're unworthy for consideration and we need a Greek source to back it up? And the only reason I say that, Jim, is because, you know, Josephus really documents the, the Jewish uh, writing process. They just, just like the uh, Chaldeans and uh, you know the Babylonians, they assigned that task to their priests. Well, this was done for the Jews too. The high priests and the prophets were the ones that were writing. They had standard practices. They had a number of scholars uh, with them. So why, why would we feel that uh, in absence of maybe a, a Greek comment, which, you know, like Herodotus and Xenophon don't write till much later, because uh, we have Jewish histories that go really far back, why would we need a Greek source? Uh, or in some cases where we're trying to uncover archaeology, um, why would we, um, not saying take them out of word, but why would we just say that uh, they're not worthy for consideration without, and I'm not saying it doesn't need to be corroborated, uh, but why would we have that view on the Jewish histories apart from our worldview? So sure. I, I'm just gonna, if I could, Jim, for just, so I, no, I feel please, like that's please. fundamentally maybe misunderstanding at least the position of 
um, Near Eastern scholars that work with the period that I know. Okay. Um, so, for example, let's take something like um, where was Belshazzar when uh, the kingdom of Babylonia fell, right? Where was he? Uh, it has nothing to do with a Greek source or, or you know, a, a Jewish source. It has to do with, uh, you know, Paul Lane Bouillot goes and looks at the, uh, the royal inscriptions from the period in cuneiform. Uh, you know, looks at the administrative text, for example, and there are two administrative texts that show that uh, Belshazzar has supplies sent to him outside of, probably outside of Babylonia, at least on the on the border, right? It's clear that Nabonidus, when he comes back from Taman, that he's he, he takes back over royal, you know, his royal prerogatives, uh, even the ones that, just the few that he gave up uh, for that co-regency or for that, you know, for the crown prince. Um, so it's not a question of do we have corroboration from you know like a Greek historian somewhere to Xenophon say something about this. It's look we have th- th- these this is this is how this works right. I mean we're looking at these cuneiform texts and saying okay so we 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 know where Be- where Belshazzar was and does this then line up with the biblical text? Well said. I want to go back to. Uh, are we just kind of open-ended here? Or is it? Still? Yes, it's yeah, open-ended. It's open-ended. Okay, I want to go back to what we're talking about in the time frame, like criteria, because I, I I feel like our questions have bounced around a little bit to the second century, fourth century, fifth century, back to what allows an opening for a book to come in. Like if Daniel's a new work, it shows up in the second century. Who would have recognized its origin? Who would have been the people in the Jewish communities that would have allowed, whether it's 1st, 2nd Maccabees, for example, or or whether it's Judith, whatever the book is, who would have recognized its timeline, its existence, its allowance, and would have written about what it is? It would have been the Jewish communities, right? Well, there's certain parts of that the Jewish communities would have uh, recognized, but would have been more ignorant about uh, interpreting without help, of course, uh, things like uh, uh, the succession of kings or the different battles or the different marriages or things like that. There's, there's, there, uh, it's, it's more unlikely that somebody who was unlearned wouldn't, uh, would know about that specific of history, but things like the early court tales in chapters one through six, Daniel in the lion's den, the, uh, the, the, uh, three friends in their furnace uh uh the these tales they uh i i believe that they would have had uh familiarity with um something that would have been uh told during the period of uh of exile under neo-babylonian rule um as a way of again uh, like i believe it was constructed in the second century for the purpose of encouraging them to maintain the the, the uh the laws of the torah and to uh, maintained uh, Jewish customs and traditions. But they would have had to, so you would say it would come down to the the priests or perhaps the princes, somebody in important levels to allow such a text to be collected in and placed in, whether it's commentary, canonical, like with all these other books. My, my point is the no, Maccabees. No, 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 I'm sorry. I think you misunderstand me. I'm saying that it, it would... It, it's, it's more likely that somebody who was more learned would uh, would identify certain historical events in Daniel. But overall, I think that the the both the Jewish community and uh, the the learned and the unlearned 
would identify some aspects of of uh, the book of Daniel as as it's written as being uh, historical events. But I guess the question is then who identified that time period outside of Profer later, which was more in a linguistical argument, which, which by the way, to be clear, I do think the book of Daniel had things done to it in that time frame. For example, I think Bell and the Dragon, I think Susanna, the Song of the Jewish Boys, I think all of that was probably compiled in the frame time that you're in for your dating of Daniel. It's not that I don't think that something happened with the book of Daniel at that time. You're saying what happened is it was collected of sections like one and six, which go back to earlier times, coming into these new sections there, when actually Profer and Jerome were dealing with the fact that these big, these extra sections were not necessarily the sections you're arguing for. It would have been the sections of the Jewish boys, uh, the Bell and the Dragon. This was the contention between Profer and Jerome. Well, well no, no, because Porphyry makes the arguments of, uh, of, Neb- of Nebuchadnezzar being the king during the invasion. He makes uh, the, the argument against uh, j- the the confusion between Jehoiachin and Jehoiakin, uh, the the conflation of Nabonidus yes. with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. But but you know that Jerome combated the fact that they were not the same king. He made the distinction. He actually talks about the no, ending. No, he, he, do you know what his argument is? Well, Jonathan had read it just a minute ago, and I'm pretty sure, sure even on his screen, he actually had the uh, reference to it when he was <laughs> arguing Profer's position on that. And he Jonathan, actually, what, what, what is what is Porphyry's uh, argument? Well, he, he was using that passage to uh, go against, he was trying to use it uh, to show that the generation, he was using it to attack Matthew. Uh, and that's what Jerome reports in that. Right, but but how is he saying that that Jehoiakim is Jehoiachin? No. <laughs> go ahead, John. Go, 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 oh. ahead. go ahead. Oh, is my mute on? Or I, I don't okay. want to interrupt you. Go ahead, Jonathan. I'll, I'll go after you now. So J- Jerome says, let no one therefore imagine in, uh, imagine that Joachim in the beginning of Daniel is the same person as the one who is spelled Joachim. Right. Uh, sorry for my pronunciation. In the commencement of Ezekiel, for the latter has Chin as its final syllable, where the former has Kim. And it is for this reason that in the gospel, according to Matthew, there seems to be a generation missing because the second group of 14, extending to the time of Joachim, ends with the son of Josiah, and the third group begins with Joachim, son of Jehoiakim. Being ignorant of this factor, Profer formulated a slander against the church, which only revealed his own ignorance as he tried to prove the evangelist Matthew guilty of error. So, right. yeah, so that, he, that's from so Jerome's he's, he's, he, he's referencing uh, Matthew 1, 1 11, uh and says that uh, that basically that that Jeconiah is the the grandson or or Jehoiachin. Uh, no wait, yeah, Jehoiachin is the grandson of Josiah. Um, but that's just due to an alternate reading. All Jerome has to go off of is the Greek and Latin text. Um, well, so, but he, he did go. He, he worked with the Jews on the translation, so he had the Hebrew text because he was well, translating he, the Hebrew into Latin. He he himself wasn't wasn't translating it. He was he was uh, the, the one basically uh, transcribing it essentially according to tradition. No, well, uh, I mean, just 
I mean, he reports, and we have lots of documentation. He obviously he had a team; it wasn't him by himself, but he was very much involved. He he was trained by the rabbi, and he reports in working with the Jews, and that's where it comes up to discussion right. on these other texts. But no, he 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 was trained in Hebrew. He he remember Augustine uh, uh, attacked Jerome for his translation of Job because his translation of Job made it into the uh, uh, the North African church and they attacked Jerome because that was his translation. So they didn't identify that work with uh, some secondary writer. Uh, they came after Jerome. Jerome explained his reasoning uh, for the translation of Gord to Ivory. So uh, we're talking about a Hebrew scholar that is well-recognized. He was trained uh, by a rabbi in Hebrew to do this massive tr uh, project uh, from taking going to the Hebrew, which he said he did, uh, to translate. And once again, he was commenting against other editors at the time that was working on the Jewish canon, say, uh, saying that you have to do it from the Hebrew. So... I mean, he was well. I mean, he was an expert in the Hebrew. And, well, and when, when say he was an, an expert in it, because he didn't even even begin to learn it until until after the the authorship of the the, the Greek text. Um, but I mean, it, I mean, he's he's known as translating from the Greek to the Latin, not the Hebrew to the Latin. Well, well I mean, he did the entire Old Testament, uh, and he and he does right, which at this time was already translated into Greek. Well, yeah, but he went to his specific testimonies. He went straight to the Hebrew uh, to do the translation you're, into the Latin. You're talking about his his last version of the Old Testament, right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the the entire Old Testament. Right, right. So the, that was his his last uh his last works or or, or whatever but anyway this is it's it's but, but, but his argument, argument. um his but, argument but, was from ezekiel and when he was writing against profer he wasn't right. just fighting it from matthew's perspective he went back to ezekiel's mentioning of it but but you have to go to every mention like in jeremiah and in, in, in ezekiel they they both mention who the king was during the uh, the the during the siege of Jerusalem, uh, and they both disagree with Daniel. Um, it, it, literally, everybody up until the time of uh, of uh, uh, gosh, I guess Josephus is is against uh, you know Jerome's. Uh, apologetic I, I i would call it because essentially jeremiah's argument is that it's 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 written in in code and that you can only understand it if you if you translate it but once you translate it well then you can see that uh that there's actually no confusion it's actually uh saying this king but it really means this king but which but, really isn't isn't an argument it's just a really really bad apologetic it's reaching is what it is but and it's not something that's held by anybody today Anybody. But this was the argument between Jerome and and Profer because yes, Profer, Profer looking at the Theodosian perspective of this, and and he Correct. was writing against saying, "Well, why are people accepting this text?" In fact, there's a part where Jerome said, "Why right. are they accepting this text?" Because he was standardizing it from his perspective of the Hebrew text, which he also sent the researchers into Jerusalem to accumulate this information. 
His argument about Jehoiakim and so forth was on the basis of the Hebrew wording, not the Greek wording but, of it. No, the the the, the misunder the the uh, the acceptance slash rejection between the Septuagint and the the Theodosianic version um, was not you know not due to, to to that at all not due to Jeconiah or Jehoiakim but no uh, mostly no. evolved around Daniel nine and the and and specifically verse twenty five because the uh, the Septuagint version um, uh, included a a punctuation mark between sixty two weeks. Uh, um, well, between uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Septuagint put a punctuation after the seven weeks and 62 weeks, which would uh, essentially provide a reading of a combination of the, the 62 and the 70 to 69, whereas the Theodosianic um, uh, translated it in, in, the, the, in the plain reading of it, uh, that there will be, uh, um, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem into uh, uh, a, a Messiah of the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Uh, this, the, sh- the city shall be, be built again. So, and then you have the, the Masoretic uh, tradition, which is different than both of them. So that, that was the mo- most of it uh, evolved around. But for the most part, like, you know, you're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls agree with uh, with the, the, the Masoretic text of uh, over ninety percent. Uh, there's 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 very very little variation, but it agrees with it way more than either of the Greek versions. Right, and but but my point with Jerome was, and I agree with you. That, and I and I'm glad you said that. I didn't know if that would ever come up. How much the Masoretic streamlined the Dead Seas, even the transitions of the Aramaic is spot on. But when so we're talking about part, Jerome, yeah. say that again. I said for the most part, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there's always differences. It's, it's there's, part there's of, about uh, there's about 10% of the Aramaic that's left out. Yeah, and and unfortunately, it would be nice if Daniel was just in one giant scroll and that would make life easier in the Dead Sea, but like you said there's I think yeah. there's six yeah, it'd be nice if, if, if any of the books were just one scroll. Yeah. But we're, we're thankful for what we have. It's better than most. But um, sure. I mean, the New Testament has some issues with manuscripts that the Dead Sea Scrolls do better with, and they're older. So uh, we're it's not thankful better than a Syriology. So just throw that out. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, not everybody can stick sticks and clay, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? About the Dead Sea, though, where these these scribes, whoever they are, whomever they are, are are, are writing through these commentaries, which, like you said, they don't have chapter 12, which I don't know if you hold to the argument that, well, that that proves Greek influence, Greek mythology, resurrection, where. Oh, no, I, I think that there's there's Greek influence all throughout the book of Daniel without chapter 12. Right, but that um, is, is the Greek influence. This is my next question. Do you think the Greek influence automatically makes it second century? Do you think Greek influenced even the fifth and sixth century part of the world in their understanding of things or in their intermingling of cultures, for example? Um, as far as Judea goes, I would say that from about 320, um, is, we see the rise of Hellenization across the entire region. Well, you would have to agree as well that like, I mean, the Greeks entered the Near East, really, I think it was the ninth century BC. They even built a temple by the seventh century BC and, and even archeological discovery showed pottery there in, in right. great amounts. 
that were going into the seventh century period. And I think it was, um, I cannot remember if it was opium. I can't remember who found it, but there were two documents discovered that were 550 BC describing trade agreements between the Babylonians of the near East with Greece, with Tyre, with, sure. with of course, yeah, that, that, that explains things like uh, certain Greek loan words in the, in the book of right. Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Greek culture was not like, so you wouldn't hold the position just because there is Greek influence, boom, it's automatic second century that there could have been Greek influence. Like there's instruments in Daniel with Greek terms or what what I would say is that in terms of a sixth century dating, we don't see any other sixth century text, uh, Babylonian text that is um, that, uh, that express this level of, of Hellenization. I mean, while Hellenization did exist in Babylon, the, the text from Babylon and the, the Hebrew text, uh, weren't, weren't keen on, on, on expressing, uh, um, Hellenized ideas, uh, you know, willfully, you know, without, without influence. Um, like, uh, the, the instruments, for example, the, the court instruments, uh, uh, that are, uh, Greek loan words in the book of Daniel, um, you know, they, while they would be familiar with the instruments uh, during the Neo-Babylonian period, the Hellenization wouldn't have gone so far as to replace similar Babylonian instruments with Greek instruments, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, I know that uh, even in the wording, though, Hebrew words showed up with Greek influences. I think Yawan mm-hmm. is one of them for the like settlements of Lonia of the western coast of Turkey. I mean, you've got sure. different regions that did start adopting very early into that time period of the Near East, you do see it. I mean, my goodness, if there's a temple built, if there's a temple built in in the seventh century BC, there's going to be an influx. In fact, there were soldiers in the armies of like, I mean, the the Jews and the Greeks were even working together at one point in different facets of war when it came to, so there's going to be but, some, but you, know, you, you, you also have to remember if if the book of Daniel is written in the sixth century, it's not being written in those in those areas. The the author would be writing under a a, a post neo Babylonian Persian Empire in, in in that area. I mean, uh, so I mean, you would see expect to see uh, Persian influence. You would expect to see. Uh, uh, Babylonian influence, of course, the remaining Babylonian influence, yeah, um, uh, Jewish influence, uh, but you would not expect to see a a a a, a high level of, of Greek influence so much that you have three words to reference uh, court instruments, uh, of which there were already historically similar uh, Babylonian equivalents, uh, and an, an additional Greek loan word, uh, uh, um, symphonia. Uh, on on top of that, uh, I, I don't I don't think that it would have reached that level of, of Hellenization. Well, guys, we're well, just, just to announce that, that we, we will try and wrap this up in about five minutes. But go ahead, sure. Stephen. So so going into like Persian words or Akkadian words or something like that d- during Josh. the region of Mesopotamia, like in chapter one of Daniel, for example, like the, the Hebrew section, not not the Aramaic. You have Ashpenaz there and the Greeks didn't even know how to translate it. I mean, they thought it was a personal name, but it turns out it was actually the interpretation of an innkeeper, what we would say an innkeeper is. At the time, they thought it was just simply a a, a personal name. They had lost meaning. Even Collins noted that in his book, that it was almost a lost meaning. You see, I think it was Montgomery that listed 12 words from the Akkadians 
uh, section or in the Aramaic section, 12 Akkadian words and in the Hebrew one, which would almost indicate that the writer was familiar with the Mesopotamia region. So it seems like if this guy is writing this book, whether one or two authors, he was aware of distinct terminology that Montgomery actually documents of Akkadian language, which would have influenced Mesopotamia. So you have Persian influence, old Persian, where even Collins is saying this ancient term was even known to the Greeks. They didn't know how to translate it. It took archaeological discoveries to understand it. And now we know it means innkeeper, but the Greeks thought it was a, a personal name in, in chapter one, verse three. And then you have Montgomery and these guys are like, well, there's actually Akkadian influence. There's 14 in the Aramaic, one in the Hebrew, influencing Mesopotamia reasons too. But when you look at the Masoretic text, when they're translating it, from from Hebrew, you know, from their written and oral traditions, they don't seem to have that issue. When you're talking about the Masoretic text, you're talking about in the yeah, yeah the, the Masoretic text, the, the Hebrew text, where you where you have the, this issue with the 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 Greek authors of the Theodosianic and the Septuagint versions of of Daniel, you find this difficulty. Well, they found a lot of difficulties in words, sure. which which would indicate that old Persian influence that was definitely there. I think having Akkadian words in there shows that the writer was a well, because one of the things you'd made comment of uh, earlier was the influence of society. And I don't remember if that's the word. I'm sorry if I butchered your statement, like influence of surroundings. But if there's Akkadian terms, then the writer must have been familiar with something from the Mesopotamia region. Even if there's just a handful, like 14 in the Aramaic, one in the Hebrew, that Montgomery lists, there must well, have been some Mesopotamia. So I wouldn't eliminate and say, well, Daniel's not influenced by its external cultures of that time in the 5th, 6th, 6th century period. It seems like the writer would have been with things like that or, or old Persian terms that are in the text as well. I do think there's an argument for older timings that were lost by the time Hellenizing cultures took over. So that, like you said, these Greek texts, whether Septuagint, the Theodosians, they didn't even know what certain words meant. They lost its meaning in antiquity. And even Collins had to say, yeah, this is an antiquity thing here where the Greeks didn't know it anymore. It was lost to them in understanding. Right, but it wasn't lost to the Hebrews is, 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 is what I'm saying. And it makes sense that, that if Babylon uh, uh, conquered... Uh, the Akkadians, you know, if, if if Hammurabi conquered the Akkadians, then it makes sense that those people that he conquered would, uh, even those who assimilated to Babylonian culture, would still maintain some aspects of their pre-existing Akkadian culture. Right, guys, we just have about one minute left, and uh, just ask that so, you guys... In sorry, the Dr. George, please try to... <laughs> trying to wrap this just, up. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I just... I'm, this sort of bring it full circle. The the consensus thing came up. Both of you guys brought that up, and I, I want to kind of address it. Um, because th this isn't an appeal to consensus in the sense that the consensus says that that's why it's right. And I think that needs to be clear. Uh, if we had stopped there and said, well, look, this is what everybody says, so that we can all go home now. I think you'd have, you know, a right to say that. Um the reason, I think the reason that consensus scholarship holds this um, is not some anti-supernatural bias. It's not some naturalistic, uh, you know, point of view. Again, most of the people on faculty at Hopkins where I went were Christian, right? Uh, but as, as Jim said, this just doesn't, this just doesn't factor in. That's not how it works. 
Um, the reason that this uh, that, that most scholars, both evangelical and you know critical liberal scholars, uh, hold to a second century date is because early historical uh, details are incorrect. Not all of them, uh, but many of them. Many enough of them that it's strange, and the text is rather vague when it comes to its historical descriptions. Uh, so while it says things like this kingdom will arise and that kingdom will arise, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very vague, generally speaking. Whereas when you get down into chapter 11, it becomes this guy from the north goes here and this king from the south comes here and this person marries this person from the north and they have a they have a problem and then there's people die and then, then those people are left alone for a while. The point is that um, those details become very, very much more specific and far more accurate right up to what? Verse 40. And then at verse 40 following, it's like, oh, well, it just all goes, you know, downhill. So, you know, the, the, the fact that early is vague and inaccurate, late is highly accurate and uh, up to a very specific point and very detailed. Um, and uh, uh, I forgot, oh, the, the last kingdom is Greece. This is why consensus scholarship, not the other way around. Absolutely. Guys, yeah, and I just want to throw one more thing. Uh, guys, we just, uh, guys, the time is up, Jim. Uh, if, okay, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, really sorry about that. Our time is up uh, with that. Uh, we've, we've concluded uh, our 30 minutes of uh, discussion. Guys, I just want to give a really, really uh, applaud all of you guys for having this amazing debate. Really, really intense. You guys kept it really respectful. Uh, especially just want to thank Stephen and Jonathan for presenting a really good case for the Christian side and also to Dr. Josh and uh, Jim Majors for really, really making this a fantastic discussion for all of us. Really unfortunate that we have to cut it at the time. We do want to keep strict uh, to the time that we've already set out. So uh, with that, uh, guys, we do go to the Q&A session. I want to pass the time over to James. And with that, I will sign out. Thank you very much, Samuel. We'll jump into the Q&A. And folks, we have about 20 to 25 minutes, so we're going to move through these questions fast. Our first one's coming in from Explain Apologetics, which, by the way, folks, pardon me, I am going to add Explain Apologetics into the description as well as we appreciate collaborating with them. And so you can also find all four guests linked in the description as well so you can hear or read more from them as we really do appreciate them. And this first question coming in from Finding Truth says, Dr. Josh and Jim, is it so hard to consider that Jerusalem was not, quote unquote, destroyed because of Daniel's prophecy? Is that an option? What is your theory? Go ahead, Jim. Uh, I mean, I... I I don't think that I don't I don't know why why that I honestly don't know how that 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 came up. I mean, uh, I, I think that you know Daniel talks about the uh, the rebuilding of of a temple and he talks about uh, a confirmation of of a covenant uh, and uh, in the middle of that seven he's going to uh, put an end to the sacrifice and put up an abomination that causes desolation. Uh, but uh, other than that, I don't. I don't think that it's talking about the literal destruction in that in in that portion. You got it, and thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Don Fullman says, Doctor Boyce, what is the prophecy of two thousand three hundred days in Daniel? I'm not exactly sure what he's asking. Is he talking about from Daniel's timeline? 
That's he's talking about the the prophecy of the the days and evenings, a uh, uh, reference to the uh, the daily sacrifices at the temple, all the way down to the time of Messiah. Is it talking about all the way to the time of the cutting off of Messiah? Uh, it, the the reference is is alluding to um, Antiochus's uh, 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 banning of the the daily sacrifice. So oh, up to the corruption, that, up to the corruption of it when he defiled and sacrificed the pig. Um, yeah, for, there's for, that like three and a half that. year period that goes through yeah. the the second half of the book. Yeah, yeah 2,300 days and evenings. I guess I don't understand the question and that, and, and he can ask me on the side because he and I are pretty good friends on the side. So maybe he can clarify. I'm, I'm not sure. Is he asking what's the point of it? Is he asking why? Um, all they had asked is what's the prophecy of 2300 days in Daniel? I, I guess it, I, I mean, I guess the simple answer is it's up to the sacrifice periods like Jim's talking about. I mean, it's, I don't know if he's looking for something specific, but do I think it's accurate? Do I think it's false? I, I think I think he's asking you um, where you think that uh, it, it, what point you th- in time you think that it's alluding to. Uh, uh, I'm thinking that he's probably referring to the the end of the 2300 evenings and mornings uh, in Daniel eight. I would I would say it's probably up to Antiochus. I would imagine uh, with the sacrifice system. You got it. And thank you for this question, or I should say compliment. This one coming in from Don Fullman as well, who said great work on this debate. So I couldn't say, I couldn't agree more. Our guests are linked in the description. We really do appreciate them. And hey, if you haven't clicked already, you can find their links below. And that includes if you're listening via the podcast. So thanks for your question. Sebastian says, which method of distinguishing true from false claims of divine revelation indicates a conclusion that is exclusively concordant with one religion. I, I guess it, it depends on what parameters you have for your theological position. I'd say that whatever interpretation best uh, explains the, uh, the, the problem and, uh, and exists within the parameters uh, set for your theological presuppositions, I'd, I'd say that'd be the best one. Yeah, I would say the methodology for sure. Uh, We go back to methodology, uh, setting up those guidelines, following it through inconsistencies, following through uh, any error or disposition that would contradict, looking for consistencies. You got it. And this one from EndoXD, Jim has a cool mustache, no doubt. And (laughs) Anarchist Anarchist Weasel says, question for Jim. Seems like there are parallels between the books of Daniel and Judith in inaccuracy and Hellenization. Is this a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, there's also uh, elements of, of First Enoch. Uh, I mean, then that's kind of what you see with later apocalyptic literature. There, there's a lot of feeding off of previous apocalyptic literature or, or similar themes. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Farron Salas. Appreciate it. Said, I'm not, quote unquote, learned enough on the book of Daniel to ask a coherent question. So no questions for me today. But thank you to the participants in modern day debate. Thanks, Farron. That appreciate that. And Sentinel Apologetics says, question, if Daniel was written in 165 B.C., is this still uh, this still predates the Roman Empire's rise to power? And if the Roman Empire is in view in Daniel 2 and 7, then doesn't Daniel have predictive prophecy? 
if only Daniel was thinking about Ryan. Yeah. I mean, this is this is sort of the point that they're trying to get at, that, 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 that particularly uh, very clearly in uh, 8 and 10 to 12. And I mean, I think through uh, the descriptions of Antiochus uh, in those chapters where it's clear uh, that that's what's being referenced. Uh, you, know, you can see that in 9, definitely, and I think probably 7 as well. Uh, that Greece is in view, right? And this is why I think, and Jim, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but, you know, in Second Estros, you know, when, he, when he says, what is it in chapter 10 or 12? I can't remember. Um, you know, he says, you know, Daniel understood this to be Greece, but, it, you know, then he goes on to describe it as actually being Rome. So, uh, yeah, right. I mean, that, that's that's why I think it's clear. Well, Greece and, and then you have the, the, the whole little horn being Antiochus, you know, uh, it seems like Dr. Dr. Boise, you would agree that the little horns Antiochus. Um, so, I mean, how how can you go from that to it being Rome? It, this is what you find in apocalyptic literature as well. And I think that's where we have to be careful with how literal we take apocalyptic literature. There are many fulfillments and consummations, many fulfillments, consummations. <clears throat> that is both consistent in the Psalms. Uh, in its prophetic nature at times, it's very consistent in the whole entire view of Jesus's prophetic lines when he gets in the Olivet Discourse, where you're going down to Revelation. Revelation, the book of Revelation, for example, takes many multi over the period of history and in, in Jewish history, apocalyptic things that were fulfilled, but not consummated. And so there can be like miniature fulfillments, and this is happening all the time in scripture, miniature fulfillments where there's a lookalike thing that happens, and then it happens again. Like, so when Jesus talks about Daniel, he talks about the abomination of desolation. Anybody who was at that time would have said, well, that was what Antiochus of Epiphanes did. That's what Antiochus did when he desecrated our temple. But yet Jesus was still using that terminology, not as a past event, but looking to something that would come almost in a futuristic sense. So the question is, is could it be a miniature, not consummated prophecy? Because we have to admit in Daniel, again, what Antiochus did not do is destroy that temple. Well, but, it doesn't say destroy. It's talks about the building of a temple and him presenting the abomination of desolation within the temple. But the right. end, of, I think, but, but the end of the result of the prophecy was that the temple would be destroyed. And Daniel predicted a. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, oh, yeah sorry. Sorry, go, go ahead, Dr. Josh. No, I was just like this. That's why I say these are not disinterested. Uh, what I would consider to be like critical later interpretations. Right. These are theologically biased and motivated reinterpretations of a text. So like we had Stephen Cook, Dr. Stephen Cook from Virginia Theological Seminary on our channel. Uh, and we talked about Daniel. We talked about apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic literature is is written in just such a way that it allows for this sort of flexibility. But that's the point of the literature. Right. The problem that I think and I'm like, I have no expertise in apocalyptic literature, but I think that the, the problem is that saying oh, well, Rome is prophesied about, and then you say, well, no, it's very clearly Greece, and then you say, well, no, but, like, it allows for that. Well, you can't, then you can't stand on that, right? You have to say, well, that's a later theological interpretation, and, like, I don't have any problem if somebody wants to say, well, I think God superintended that, but that's a faith-based position. Well, well I, I, I see that, that even if you, if you think that, that Daniel is, 
is uh, is is prophecy and is and is correct in the sixth century BCE text. It's still undeniable that the position that the Jews in the exile find themselves in in one through six, such as having to eat certain unclean foods or to worship strange gods, it's it is the same position that the Jews under the Antiochian position were 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 put under. Um, so they would have certainly used stories like that, uh, those found in chapters one through six, um, as a basis for uh, a, a text or, or find it authoritative or, or even comforting enough to preserve. But but the point that I was making with that is that Jesus looked at, for example, the abomination of desolation as something to come even after that time period. So even the New Testament writers or the people like the apostles or Jesus himself also understood that apocalyptic literature to be more than, and I think you're agreeing with what I'm saying. And it sounds like, well, well, well I mean, but I mean, but of, I mean but Daniel does is that, this is that before you have the desolation, you have to have the building of the temple. Right. Right. Which, so, which, if, so, so that, that means in order for it to be rebuilt, it has to be destroyed. So that means that it would be destroyed in 70 and we'd be talking about a rebuilt temple in the future. Um, there isn't there. The temple wasn't rebuilt. There is no third right. temple. But that's where, but that's where the uh, the consummation part would come in, Jim. And that's the point of the writer, for example, of Revelation. And I know you're going to make the claim, well, perhaps, perhaps that it's a faith base. They're looking forward to this rebuilding. I mean, even modern right. Jews are still looking forward to rebuilding. That's what makes it apocalyptic and futuristic prophecy. Right. And then the writer of the kingdom of Rome. But when did the Roman kingdom end? Four ten. Yeah, I mean, a while back. <laughs> but but at no point did Daniel say it would happen exactly by the Roman Empire, which is what we're all saying. I think we all agree he, he that, that it would be the, the kingdom following be, the Roman yeah, Empire. Be, be, be Greece, yeah. And and I think this is... Or the like, Fourth Empire. Yeah, I mean, but, but he says Greece in two of the visions, right? So, exactly. But, but I think... But I think the, the the bigger issue that I would see here is that Daniel does this, right, in chapter 9 itself, right? So, you know, he's looking at Jeremiah's prophecy about 70 years of captivity, right? And, and I mean, obviously, Daniel's claiming that he gets this, you know, vision from a heavenly agent. But uh, the point is, is, wait a minute, it wasn't, it, it wasn't actually 70. It was 77s, right? So we can tie it to Leviticus 26. And but the, the the problem is that there are two ways that I think for me anyway that you can look at this. You can look at this as, yeah, legitimately Jeremiah said 70 years, which I think probably wasn't supposed to be 70 specific years, but whatever. Um, yeah. and that and that actually God superintended and he really meant it to be 77s, or right, and that's a supernatural thing, or uh, this is people writing later after the 70 years of long come and gone and scratching their heads going, whoa, whoa, buddy. Like, <laughs> what's going on? And, oh, Which is why oh. there's no consensus among modern conservative give, uh, interpreters. I want to give uh, the last word to Josh and Jim Sorry. since the question was originally for you guys. So Baran Vranji goes and asks, wow, Book of Daniel. Let's see. Need to be an expert to comment on this this one, so I shall stay silent. Well, Barn Barnji, thanks for coming by and hanging out with us. Probably just making fun of me. That's okay. I take <laughs> it. I take it. S.J. Thomason, good to see you. It says, oh, why hey, are only three <laughs> Greek loan words in parentheses musical instruments present if his book were written when believers were living in a Greece-speaking world? 
Well, I think I already covered this. I think she asked this question before, but if, if she didn't hear me, just to break it down, essentially, it's an early question. Was that while there would have been Hellenization um, uh, uh, reaching Babylon at this point, and they would have familiarity with certain Greek loan words, and wouldn't be strange to find Greek loan words. Uh, we wouldn't expect to find uh, Greek equivalents uh, or, or Greek instruments that already had Babylonian equivalents being played in the court um, as early as the sixth century. Um, we we wouldn't expect to uh, to find uh, that level of Hellenization that early, uh, and we would also expect to find some sort of a uh, a contemporary. Uh, uh, parallel or, or a, con a, a contemporary uh, Babylonian reference that uh, that uses you know these the same loan words as uh, when referring to chord instruments, but all we see is references to Babylonian and Akkadian instruments. Gotcha, and thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Amy Newman. By the way, Amy Newman and CJ Cox are both linked in the description. They're both hosting after shows, so we encourage you to check those out. Amy Newman says after show at my channel for believers. What there... two after shows? Is there... Oh, that's right. So there's and but ask for believers. Is there any empirically detectable phenomena that is occurring when a prophet is predicting prophecy? Well, you know, I, I would say if someone predicts something that they could not have known or foreseen. Um, and it comes to pass. Um, now it doesn't mean it, it has to be by divine revelation. Uh, obviously, there's people that believe in ESP out there. I don't know Jim's uh, point of view on ESP or the natural phenomenon, but um, you know, and, and this is where it goes back to Profer. Profer understood that what was prophesied in the book of Daniel came to pass. Um, and that's why he, he centered, you know, a whole work against it, because as a pagan, as a neo-Platonic uh, philosopher, uh, he understood reading Daniel, what it meant. Uh, he understood the history of the time and that had come to pass. So he obviously understood that uh, if it was sixth century and it wasn't produced, then it predicted prophecy. Well, I, I just want to say that even if we didn't have Porphyry or any of his arguments preserved, even if we didn't have any uh, any sort of uh, a polemic or or a, a response to uh, the the Book of Daniel as as prophecy or whatever, uh, we could still come to the same conclusions using the same methods that we use. Porphyry is is not by any means a uh, a, a a necessary source uh, for a, a late uh, a late dating of Daniel. We'll give you the last word, Jonathan, or Dr. Boyce, if you want it. But if you want, you can pass, and we'll go to the next one, too. Oh, no, we can go to the next question, I think. Uh... Okay. Next one, Apocalypse here says, prophecy, quote-unquote, hasn't been defined in this discussion. Maybe I missed it, but predictive seems reductive. What do we mean by prophecy regarding Daniel? I would uh, I would say personally uh, that that prophecy is not just history that's being predicted uh, that it has uh, that it has a a predictive power uh, to it and that is 
divinely inspired, something that is uh, is inerrant uh, as uh, as it's defined in 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 in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy. That if if there is is one word or or uh, one one aspect of it that is uh, that is wrong uh, or or that can that fault can be found with, then it is not it is not the word of God, and that the the person is not a prophet. Gotcha. And this one coming in from. Actually, I want to give a chance because that question could be for anybody. So, uh, yeah. Jonathan or Dr. Boyce, if you want to respond as well, you can. Uh, I think Dr. Jim's Jonathan. answer is pretty spot on. Um, it, it is a unveiling of something that is yet to be seen, that is released to somebody to understand. There's two natures to prophecy. There's a futuristic nature to prophecy. It's an unveiling. It's something that's ahead of time that God unveils the human eyes to see outside of his own time and place. Well, On the well, other hand, there's... Well, I, I just want to add a caveat to that. I agree with you, but it, it also, prophecy always had a meaning to those who it was written for primarily. Oh, even absolutely. If it, even if it, if, it, if it prophesied future events, it had a present meaning. Oh, no. Well, yeah. And that's where I was going with that. But that futuristic had a application for its current audience and they used different ways to understand it. Like Daniel or the apocalypse, they always used imagery. Imagery was a big thing. The horn was an imagery. So they would take a futuristic understanding and they'd bring an imagery of their day, their modern time that they would understand whether it's an item, an animal, they would use that as the means to give um, a, a writing. But there's also a second, but that's on the apocalyptic side. Again, prophecy is not limited to futuristic understandings. I, even in the New Testament, a prophet could be somebody who's just repeating that which was already prophetic. So there's two natures to the prophet. There's new revelation and there's repeated revelation. Must move to the next one. This one comes in from yeah. Chris. Unless, Jonathan, did you have one that you want to add? No, no, I, I think Jim and uh, no, no, Steve no, go, go, go ahead. We can get bogged down on this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I think they did a good enough job on this. There's multifacets it. to it. There's multifacets to prophecy. Yeah. It can be expressed in apocalyptic or it can be just straight up clear, no, no imagery straight up. There's different elements to the apoc- uh, to a, to a prophecy. You got it. And Chris says, I enjoyed tonight's debate. It was very, a very pleasant exchange by exceedingly knowledgeable guests. Love to listen to Dr. Josh. He is always very modest. And next one coming in. Let's see. Patrick Lowinger says, I want to know what Dr. Boyce thinks about Julius Africanus's, if I'm pronouncing that right, second century CE claim contained in a letter from Origen that Daniel was fraudulent. From Origen? Origen actually defended the the status of the earliest parts. So I'm not sure what we're talking about because Origen would have been a defender of the timeline of Daniel that both Josephus, Jerome, and Eusebius placed it in. I think you might be talking about the pseudepigraphal text. Uh, in a letter to Origen that Origen had concluded? I, I think it's a, 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 uh, it, it wasn't really, it just purports to be, uh, if it's what I'm thinking of. But if, it, if if we're talking about the real man origin, he would have definitely placed Daniel. No. If, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's a, it's a pseudepigraphal author. But yeah, I, I, I agree with where you're going. 
Yeah, I would say I, I'm not. Sh- I, I, I'm sorry if I'm not familiar with that pseudoepigraphal work. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about Origen himself, if it's something that pseudoepigraphal is saying that this came from Origen, it would not be accurate because Origen made a defense of Daniel, uh, and he would have placed it in the same same exact timeline that Jerome landed it, Josephus landed it. He would have been on on the argument and the side of where uh, Jonathan and I are. Gotcha. And this one coming in from Sentinel Apologetics. Since the oldest Qumran Daniel fragment, in parentheses 4Q Dan C, dates to 125 BC, and if Daniel dates to 165 BC, does this mean that Daniel was quickly read and approved by Qumran scribes no later than 125 BC? Uh, well, it can be as late as 100. Uh, it's usually dated between 125 and 100. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, you have uh, other texts that aren't canonical that are second century texts that are that are found uh, in in Qumran, uh, several of them. Gotcha. Well, R.K. Harrison made a comment about this. Um, I believe he passed away back in the 90s. Um, he had made a comment that the period of composition at in any event absolutely precluded by the evidence from Qumran, partly because there are no indications, whatever, that the secretaries compiled any of the biblical manuscripts recovered, and partly there would, in latter event, have been insufficient time for the Maccabean composition to be circulated, venerated, and accepted as canonical scripture by a Maccabean sect. And it, I think it didn't have what, to be accepted as, as canon, though, because the Qumranic texts don't don't uh, purport to be a, a canonical collection. It's just simply a collection. But, but that, but, but Jim, that goes back to the fact that the fragment stated that it was written in Daniel, the prophet, it was written. They did see him as a guy who wrote. Under sure. But, th- th- but that's not written in one of the fragments of the book of Daniel. It's written on a commentary on the book of Daniel. So I guess somebody saw By Daniel the as a scribes. prophet. But the people who didn't would be like the the Jews whenever they said whenever the uh, the the earliest reference that we have to their setting of the canon of the Hebrew Bible uh, that uh, that Daniel is was not originally placed with the prophets that he was placed with the writings. Um, I mean it, the 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 Masoretic text seems to be the one that that you would hold to be more uh, more authoritative. You know, being as you're using the Dead Sea Scrolls, which align the most with the Masoretic text. Yeah, but if there's going to be an unknown provenance of this origin of Daniel that came, we don't know where, we don't know from who, and then within a couple of years, it ends up in Qumran transmitted and a full-fledged commentary attaching it to the prophecies of Messiah equal to Deuteronomy, Hosea, Isaiah, and, I mean, I think a couple years is but, probably... But, but, but we know from Pauline text that it's not necessary to know who the author question, was. Because this question was for be Jim or Dr. Josh, I can give you the last response, Jim or Dr. Josh, then we're going to the next question, okay, just to keep it... I was just saying that I, I don't think that it, it... I mean, there's evidence that it's not necessary to know who wrote it or when they wrote it in order to be accepted into canon. You've got uh, Pauline epistles that aren't, uh, that aren't uh, authentic. You've got... Uh, writings attributed to Moses that we know Moses didn't write. Uh, I mean, it's tradition does not equal historicity. We'll jump to this next one. Appreciate your question from Ms. Metal says, do you agree Nostradamus was a prophet since he is more accurate than the Bible prophecies? 
I don't know who that's for. Presumably for our Christian guests. I think he's just really good at writing apocalyptic literature. I, I, I think a good case could be made that uh, you could obviously uh, interpret a lot of that. So I, I do understand uh, where Jim and Dr. Josh will be coming from in terms of uh, uh, spinning um, apocalyptic literature like that to fit a particular event. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I would so much say he was a prophet as opposed to, uh, yeah. Gotcha. And this next one coming in from Patrick Lowinger sends in another question. Appreciate it, Patrick, which was, they asked, hypothetical, if a portion or majority of was interpolated, um, I don't know what of like is the preposition of, but they say uh, added to or otherwise modified during the third descent. It must be Book of Daniel. So hypothetical of a portion or majority of the Book of, da of Daniel was interpolated, added to or otherwise modified during the third to second century BCE. Isn't the text at a minimum a partial forgery? Oh, yeah, I, 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 I would say, obviously... You know, because what's being suggested here in the hypothesis that uh, the work came into being in the second century and then it uh, assimilated itself throughout, uh, you know, Jewish culture into the synagogues. Uh, that's I mean, that's a vast conspiracy. So the uh, forge work was assimilated throughout propagating claim and and it would be a forgery. I mean, there's no other way to look at it in the sense of. You know, this isn't from Daniel in the sixth century. This isn't prophecies. Uh, this is, uh, I, I don't know how to look at it any other word except forgery in the second century because you get it into, remember what's being said is, um, and, and this is where when we look at history, we don't see all these texts going in and out of the uh, Old Testament. Uh, and, that, and that's what Josephus makes, that evidence of history is clear. We don't see things going in. While the Septuagint has one and two Maccabees, as great as the Maccabean people were to the Orthodox Jews, there's no history of that. And if anything would have came in. So if a work which wouldn't have been as significant as the Maccabeans were at that time into uh, the Jewish canon, yeah, that, that's a vast conspiracy it's a forged work uh, because it's perpetrating to be someone uh, to predict something at a time that didn't, I mean, I mean, Jim, you probably agree. I mean, it, well, well, I, mean I, I would say, you know, like what about first and second Maccabees or second Kings? I mean, that's, or Ezra or Nehemiah. Give you a quick response. Then we got to go to the next one just because I want to uh, get these last few questions in. Sorry folks on both channels. There are a lot of questions in the chat that we, we probably won't get to, and I'm really sorry about that, but we do want to respect the time of our guests. So I'll give you a quick response. Go to the after show and I'll answer anybody's question. <laughs> oh yeah, just real quick, but those documents, you know, Josephus, the Jews, all tests came before. And what, what, uh, what we don't see is all these books coming in in the second century. I, I think the biggest part that we're missing is any testimony from the period that's saying it's happening. Um, and, yeah, the first and second Maccabees. That, 
Well, well, I think what they're talking about is a practice there among the Jews that Josephus describes in detail how the, the surviving priests, uh, uh, priests would take old records uh, and compose them into new during times of war. Uh, so that's what Maccabees, it's talking about an ancient Jewish practice uh, of how they are going to preserve their texts, how they were managing their records in the time of war. Josephus goes through that entire process that matches what uh, not only uh, Ezra did in his time, Rear. but uh, what they're alluding to as well. During times of war, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, the surviving priests will compose uh, new records from the old, but there was a very strict standard process. This was left to the high priests. That's why any involvement in a work coming into the canon. Oh, I, I, I'll shut up. I'll give you a chance uh, so, so, to wrap up in maybe like 20 seconds. No, oh, okay. I, well, I'll just go. We'll, we can talk later. <laughs> this one from EndoXD says, slightly off topic, but for part of my interruption, by the way, I hate doing that. I'm really sorry. but uh, No, I'm Endo sorry, James. This is my bad. EndoXD <laughs> says, slightly off topic, but if Ezekiel was alive during the rule of Nezi, was Tyre really a prophecy? He knew Nezi attacked it and the people wanted it destroyed. I don't know much about this. I'm just curious. This just follows well, you around like a bad plague, Dr. Josh. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, that the thing about it, what's very interesting that we see in history, and I'll let jo Dr. Josh respond to this because I know he's done some work on it. But uh, the interesting in this prophecy is, you know, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the Jews are being laughed at, you know, by tyrants. And then we have this prophecy that comes out. Uh, about Tyre. It discusses the siege engines. It talks about someone coming from the same position that's coming. It, it just, uh, from history uh, and reading the event of Tyre, it explains it. And the other interesting facet of it is now the tables are turned on Tyre, uh, where Jerusalem is now spared. Uh, Tyre isn't. Uh, so that's either way too coincidental because it matches the entire scene and, and, and it doesn't matter which event of uh, Alexander you're reading from Arian or Plutarch or Rufinius. Um, we know the direction that he came into. We know what he had to do with those war engines to get across the siege into the area. And what's incredibly fascinating is the fact that the tables are turned and Jerusalem is spared from uh, uh, from Alexander, but uh, Tyre was not. And uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Dr. Josh. I know you've, you've uh, done a lot on this. Um, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't know what to say about it. I, you know, I, I would say it was a prophecy in the same way that I think, um, you know, the writer of Daniel starting in 1140 was prophesying. Right. And I, I just I, just, I think that was a genuine prediction. I think that what, you know, came before in chapter 11 was ex eventu. Um, and so, like, I, I think just as Jonathan said, you know, uh, I think Ezekiel's watching Nebuchadnezzar probably in some, either in an anticipatory sense or just watching it happen, you know, heading toward Tyre or anticipating that it would go that way um, and makes this prediction, which is part of the oracles against the nations, right? It's sort of this trope. Um and it, it doesn't come to pass, right? Uh, and, and, and that's what Ezekiel says in chapter 29. 
Um, now, if, if people want to take a theological interpretation of that, uh, which some do and say that this was actually referring to Alexander, uh, fine, you have problems. I mean, there are problems in Ezekiel 26 trying to make that happen. But, um, you know, if, if if people are okay with those inner little problems being in there, God being able to work through that, fine. I, like, I don't think that's what it is, but yeah. It's, uh, it. But I do think it was a genuine attempt at predicting the future. Thank you. And MJT532 says, would Dan know what happened to the temple at roughly 165? I, I would say, well, you know, obviously someone that's involved at the uh, time of the uh, secludians, uh, uh, you know, invasion of Jerusalem at that particular time. Yeah, I, I, I don't see why um, they could have predicted uh a destruction at that time. Uh, you know, the Jews revolted. Um, you know, the Secludians weren't very happy about uh, chasing them up into uh, their uh, their highlands. Uh, someone at that time, if you know, and you'd have to probably write it pretty close to the event. Um, I, I could see very easily where the Secludians would have destroyed uh, the temple. Um, you know, they did not, uh, you know, they set up their own sort of uh, uh, sacrifice and temple to Jews, uh, what they were trying to do. But um, I can see a person, if I'm a Jew at the time writing, um, you know, the Jews revolted. And what type of uh, uh, punishment are you going to receive from the descendants of Alexander in that area, in spite of the losses that they incurred? Uh, with some of those battles that they would destroy the temple. Um, and, and that's just my own personal view. I don't know, Jim or Dr. Josh, or you have thoughts on that? I just have questions, not really any thoughts, but. <laughs> you got it. And this next one, and I think this is our final question. MJT 532 says, there are eight prophecies in Daniel 9, 26 through 27, all remarkably matching events 171 through 164 BC, centering around Antiochus's persecution. Is that just coincidence? Well, I, I, I see it depends. Like uh, from the, the Maccabean hypothesis, if you've seen the events unfold, uh, then it would say that, well, and this is what Profort's point was at the time that. Uh, it was just too close to be co coincidental. So it had to be somebody writing after that time that was very familiar with those events, uh, which testifies to its accuracy. Um, and because otherwise you have to come to the conclusion that he knew something that he could not have known at that point in time. So it, it's really from the perspective of, you know, they, they would only know that, uh, well, if, if uh, prophecy is true, um, and that came to pass, you know, that's what professor, but if you were a person at that time who would have had to live through it and been part of that, um, one of the soldiers or involved in those campaigns, um, yes, you would have that information available to report on. Gotcha. And Thank I think, you. go ahead. If, if I could just like, I think this, cause I think you're right. Um, but I think this is where the early historical inaccuracies 
uh, weigh in and are incredibly problematic for, or maybe not problematic, but drive scholars to say, okay, well, that, that's why this is sort of confirmation. This is a second century writing. Right. And, and, and it's not an assumption that's made that prophecy can't be true. Because like I said in my opening statement, if we just assume that prophecy can be true, then we'd have to treat every text the same way, not just not just biblical text. But the second century dating is a, is a position that's reached by first examining the historical, the theological, and the literary nature of the book of Daniel, uh, and then coming to a conclusion, not starting with the assumption. We've got a final super chat came in. Oz says, Dr. Josh's team won game over. Apparently you have a fan out there. <laughs> Boom! Josh. And uh, we want to remind you folks, all four of our guests who we really appreciate are linked in the description. And last but not least, thanks Doubting Thomas and Spider the Ateo for your super stickers. Appreciate your support. And so I want to say huge thank you to our guests. It's been a great time. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us tonight. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you, James. And thanks to everybody for doing this. Thank you. Had a great time. Yeah, no, thanks, Jim, Dr. Josh, for everything. That has been really fun. Uh, yeah, no, a lot of different, uh, a lot of good insight into this. And thanks, man, likewise. Want to mention as well, folks, I will be adding, as I had mentioned, I'm a little behind. It's been a busy day, but I'm going to add Explain Apologetics's link in the description, and you can check out other debates like this one at their channel as well. And also, yeah, folks, if you enjoy this and you love debates like this, which you must if you've been here for three hours, which, again, thank you to our guests. I want to say hit that subscribe button as we have many more juicy debates coming up. And so with that, I'll be back in a moment with a post credit scene. But one last thank you to our guests. It's been a great pleasure tonight. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.